Russ, I'm feeling really anxious because the Knob Creek 12-year bottle, I've, I've only got like a 25% of the bottle left and I don't know what I'm going to do once it's done. You can't buy any more, Mike. Yeah, not here. Although, not here. Um, we did go to Yama Yamatoya. We got to talk about Yamatoya here in Japan. And we drank some shots of the uh, nine-year there and that was pretty good. That's I, okay. I rather like yeah. that. Yeah. And uh, well, one of them you didn't get to drink because um, <laughs> <It's still laughs> knocked it over on the counter. I knocked yeah. it over, but it wasn't my fault because yeah. uh, the the woman there was showing me a CD and it, I didn't, you know. I got to say though, those shot glasses weren't very um, stable, shall we say? That's true. They were, yeah, yes. they were kind of top heavy. Yeah. So I not, I knocked my drink over. I was really thinking, you know, when I, when I knocked that drink over, I was thinking of my my eighteen year old self in college, where we would have just kind of. I would have put my face on the bar and just sucked it all up because you know you, you couldn't waste beer. Yeah. You know, at the time we had that kind of you know concept, but now that I'm I'm yeah. a sophisticated adult, fifty seven year old, I just don't want to <laughs> you know just demean myself that way. Yeah. Well, at yeah. the prices uh, there, he gave us another one, no charge, and that was nice of him. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, but uh, yeah, it, it's an expensive place, but it's worth going to if anybody comes to Japan. In fact. If any of our uh, jazz fans or uh, jazz musicians that we know come to Japan, we're going to have to take them there. That'd be you can cool. play the piano. Yeah, if any jazz pianists come, we're going. You're inevitably going to have to play the piano if you go there. Yeah. But um, following in uh, Chick Corea's shoes, who yeah. used to play it when he was in Kyoto. So yeah, they still have that same piano he played on, which yeah. is very cool. Yeah. So more yeah. on that in a little bit. You're listening to Adult Music the podcast with music for the mature mind. And this is episode 105. Wow. Yeah. I can't believe we did 105 episodes. And any new listeners out there, every week we bring you six recordings, three classical and three jazz. Sometimes we get into the outer fringes. And tonight's episode is going to be called Squeeze Me accordionly <laughs> we're gonna do something we've never done that's before. a classic title i think yeah, focusing on the squeeze boxes some different types and all different styles of music we're going to cross some lines of genres uh, indeed that we haven't done before mm. and so stay tuned for all of this interesting music and any new listeners or long-term listeners, I want to remind you that in the episode description, you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music we're going to discuss. Also, at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist, all the music in one place on Deezer. That's our favorite CD quality streaming platform. You can also follow us there. Look us up, Adult Music Podcast username. You can get the playlists and the podcast all in one place if you like. And if you can't see the full description or the recording list on whatever app you listen to us on, isn't so clear, come over and check us out on our host site, Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything is nicely formatted and easy to read there. If you enjoyed the podcast, please follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us and tell a friend. Uh, word of mouth gets us new music-loving listeners. Yeah, in fact, that's the only way it gets yeah. us music-loving <laughs> listeners. We don't seem to have any other way to get them. So please tell your friends about us. If you give us a ranking or write a short review, wherever you listen to us, that helps us get listed in the browsing category recommendations for music, and it's another way we can get new listeners. You can also come over to our Facebook page, get extra info and new releases throughout the week. I put up a ton this week. You can also see our handsome faces there with a couple photos from 
the previously mentioned Yamato Ya in Kyoto. You can see that piano and lots of the jazz yeah. albums there. So uh, legendary jazz bar in Kyoto, and if you come, you should definitely visit. But bring your wallet. That's <laughs> <laughs> expensive. You can buy for us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can leave a message or comment there on Facebook. We'll we'll meet you there if you show yeah. up. Just let us know you're going. Okay. <laughs> we get a lot of interaction on Facebook with uh, artists, and we got a new friend who we featured in the podcast last week. The wonderful flute player Isabel Bodensa who yeah. uh, shared our podcast and she's liked a lot of our links and we get some nice interaction with her during the week and every week we generally pick up a few more followers most of them are musicians so if you want yeah. to get in a little community with some of these musicians with the recordings you we check our Facebook site yeah, yeah. Come over to Facebook yeah yeah thanks Isabel for all the uh the, the wonderful likes and comments and we yeah. loved your album I, I'm still listening to it I I have the CD actually bass too. flute with organ trio if you haven't heard it yet uh, go back to last episode and check it out it was wonderful she plays actually I think multiple flutes oh yeah the bass flute is on there too but was yeah. the one that really that sold was, me that was that what one. caught me yeah <laughs> And if you want to contact us directly, if you have any questions or comments, you can also get in touch by email. Our address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Also, yeah. we're sharing our audience with some other podcasts related to music. We've got Tom Gauker's Something Came From Baltimore. It's a jazz, blues, and R&B interview podcast featuring a lot of well-known musicians, uh, some real famous ones there. So check that out. Famous interviews in neon jazz. That's done by Joe Domino. He's got artists, musicians, and writer interviews. And same difference, two jazz fans, one jazz standard. And this is a podcast that looks at several versions of the same jazz standard each week. And they play little bits of each version and discuss the history of the original and the different versions. And you can find links for all of those at the end of the podcast description. Also, little audio promos will be at the end of this podcast if you stick on to the end. And you've been checking that one out, haven't you, Mike? Yeah, I've been really enjoying it too. They, I'm getting educated finally in these these jazz standards. They're they're um yeah they're really fantastic hosts. I really enjoy yeah. uh, listening to it. I've, I'm now following that podcast. Oh, great. And they, they did uh, the most recent podcast was uh, about the song "Smoke Gets in Your Eyes," one of my right. favorite songs um, by Jerome Kern. The week before that, they did the first ever um, jazz um, recording called the Liv Livery Stables. Oh, okay, which is a big New Orleans band and. Uh, do you know what a livery stable livery stable is? I didn't even know. What's a livery stable? Do you know? A livery stable is a place in, like, say, a, a city area, like a metropolitan area, where you could uh, rent a horse, <laughs> I guess, oh, okay. to ride. So if you needed a horse, you could just go to the livery stable and get one. And oh. uh, that's what that uh, the song is called, Livery Stable Blues. Okay. So mm. um, something that we don't really relate to anymore, maybe, but it was pretty interesting. I got a little bit of a historical uh, knowledge there. I was really happy about that. Yeah. Thanks, guys. I really enjoy your podcast. All right. Well, a couple more things to discuss before we get into the music, and that is we've got a big loss in the yes. jazz music world this week, and so I'll have to get up to the piano here. Yeah, and... this is definitely deserving of the Dies Irae theme. Okay. Here we go. Let me crack my knuckles. Oh and... <laughs> And there it is, the tones this week for jazz giant Wayne Shorter, uh, one of the biggest figures in jazz saxophone and composing 
born August 25th, 1933, passed away March 2nd. And all jazz fans will know him, but if you're not familiar with jazz music, he was born in Newark, New Jersey, graduated from New York University with a degree in music education in 1956, and he spent a few years in the U.S. Army, during which time he played with Horace Silver, and he played a little bit with Maynard Ferguson after he got out, but he started to come into his own in the 1950s as a member of and kind of the main composer for Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers. And then in the 1960s, he was a member of Miles Davis's second great quintet and also co-founded the jazz fusion group Weather Report. And he's recorded more than 20 albums as a band leader himself, uh, lots of interesting compositions over the years. Uh, one of the most well-respected saxophonists and composers in our lifetime. Yeah, he was still performing too. One of his albums was, um, he had an album with uh, Terry Lynn Carrington, Esperanza Spaulding, mm -hmm. and one other, I, uh, I'm going to forget one person, an album that was up for a Grammy this year. Um, right. So he was active right to the end. Yeah. And I rather envy that because um, I'm just thinking about my own you know, teaching career. I'm going to be forced into retirement <laughs> at the age of like 68 or 70 or something like that. But if you're an artist, you just get to, you just go until the end. Which I really feel like I'm... <laughs> Yeah, I, I missed something there. I should have become an artist. So I could right. just keep uh, doing that until until the yeah. end finally came. Uh, one other serious issue before we get into the music. Now, Mike's brother, Richard, is an yeah, is... enthusiastic listener of the podcast. And yeah. uh, he's constantly reminded us of how bad our New York accents are. Yeah. And, well, now see, Mike and I have both been in Japan for about 30 years so I can't really tell if New Yorkers just don't talk the way they're supposed to and they've changed or yeah. we've become fossilized sort of um, exports yeah. and, you know, we're way off the map. Now, I'm not from New York City anyway, just from New York State, so no one's going to peg me as a New Yorker. But apparently, it, you know, the way we speak must be really out of line. So it's gotten so bad that Richard had to send us some authentic uh, tutorial material <laughs> to work on our uh, accents. So we've got he, he some- actually, He actually did this. Yeah. We got listeners. <laughs> field research from Staten Island. And so we can yeah. improve our New York accent. So I'm going to, I promise I'm going to work on that. I've got that recording. I've also got an official Italian American dictionary. Yeah. No. It's Italian-American to Medigan. And <laughs> just got to yeah. go between to get all the right extra vocabulary to put in with your New York accent. Yeah. Most Italian-American like words are Neapolitan slang. Yeah. <laughs> Neapolitan dialect words. Although there's anyway, some Sicilian in there. <laughs> I always mention at the end of the podcast, the glowing neon logo that you see for adult music is courtesy of Richard's Fast Signs of yeah. Staten Island. So now we do have a lot of listeners in New York. I don't know how many of them are in the metropolitan area. So, you know, I, I don't know how many of them are in my family. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so if any of you's listeners are in the metropolitan area and you need any a of sign, you's listeners and you need a sign, <laughs> go see Richard at Fast Signs of Staten Island. But now, hey, no jabronis. I, I feel like I just moved back to uh, Staten Island there for a minute there. I don't know. If you don't got the scroll, forget about it. You're going to get Ugats. <laughs> I'll keep working on it. How's it? Oh, God. Oh, my God. 
Fast signs. Thanks for our glowing neon logo. And <laughs> with that, I think we're uh, ready to go into the uh, musical segment. Huh? All right. So today we uh, start with. Um, now the thing is, we're, we're mostly accordion tonight, but I had to. We had to fill it out. I had two accordion yeah. uh, recordings. Accordion, as we <laughs> as we say. Yeah. You know, but um, I, I kind of Russ kind of went for the reed. Um, quality yeah. of the accordion, but I had to go for the keyboard quality here and got an unusual keyboard instrument. Now, the funny thing is, is next week we're going to do all keyboards too. Now, you're going to do all piano, but I've got piano, yeah. I've got all kind of odd keyboards, including one album that's going to, we'll talk about it at the end, right. that's uh, multiple keyboard instruments, but we're going to start with an odd keyboard instrument right here. Um, yeah. This is um, Johann Sebastian Bach, whose uh, music I never get tired of listening to, and neither should you, because if you do, you probably stopped living. You should check if you're breathing because, um, you know, this is pretty much what music is going to sound like uh, in the in the afterlife. Okay, I think. Hope so. Well, one would hope. Yeah. Anyway, the album is just called Clavichord. I think it's an ECM yeah. new series album. The uh, performer is Andras Schiff. Okay, now. I personally grew up with Andras Schiff's Bach playing in the '80s. He was the premier. Hmm like Bach player. Now, later on, Angela Hewitt, as um, our friend Nathan in Italy will um, will know, has kind of taken over this sort of mantle as um, Schiff has branched out into other things. But I remember, like, when I was younger and when I was in college, when I was first discovering classical music, it was really Andras Schiff who was the great um, Bach player of the time. And he made his first performances then on the piano. They were all released on the Decca label. I had a lot of them. I don't think I have them anymore, which is too hmm. bad. But, you know, styles go on and whatever. But in the notes for this release, this ECM New Series release, um, he says his experience with the very quiet and highly intimate clavichord, which was an instrument that Bach himself um, had and played, goes back to 1965, the year of my birth, hmm. when he was invited by Hungarian television to play a short piece beforehands by Daniel Gottlob Turk. He played this with Josef Gott, a former pupil of Bartok. Can you imagine? Uh-huh. <laughs> and one of the most prominent piano teachers of the Budapest Music Academy, and he played the lower half and Schiff played the upper half. Mm-hmm. You know, when we were younger, there were still people around who were students of like great composers of the past. I guess this still happens, but um, you, you think it's it's really strange. Like yeah. over 50 years, like a lot of these people are now like twice removed, but... Um, there you go. And um, Gott was the first person in Hungary to explore and practice the art of playing historical keyboard instruments. Now, you got to think about this. 1965, the uh, period instruments kind of revival really took off in the 1980s, but it was already being sort of um, explored in the 1970s and apparently the 1960s too. And it really kind of started with a lot of, in I think, England, really, like English um ensembles really started kind of looking into this again in the 1970s and in the 1980s it really took off so anyway um Josef Gott explained uh, a lot to Schiff about Daniel Gottlob Türk the composer and the clavichord when I was younger there when you thought about baroque music it was um Bach Handel Vivaldi and that was it and there were books you know you could read about the, the the Italian masters and stuff like that but now we have recordings of all of these um composers from the time and we can get a fuller picture of really what was happening mm. which is really nice and uh it's it's been a wonderful sort of like 
years and years of discovery for me. And I'm still discovering here. And here I'm discovering what the clavichord sounds like. I've actually heard the clavichord before. I've often mentioned on this podcast that the harpsichord is a very quiet instrument. So when you're hearing it on a recording, it's um, you're hearing it at a very loud level because you can turn it up. And uh, if it's in a <laughs> concert hall, yeah. But but here <laughs> in the clavichord is even quieter than the harpsichord. This is actually true. Now I've played harpsichords. I've never actually seen a clavichord in person, but it's apparently a lot quieter. Then the harpsichord yeah. is. And the harpsichord is already very quiet. If you were playing a clavichord in one room and you closed the door, people in the rest of, in the rest of the house or the other room wouldn't be able to hear it. It's interesting too because oftentimes on record, harpsichord sounds giant, like they have yeah. the microphone stuck in the box. So you get this. Distorted... That's the case here too in the cla well, with the clavichord. <laughs> I, I didn't find that though. I realized <laughs> when I was listening to this, I had my volume. You know, I rarely have it maybe at the um, nine o'clock position, it's loud enough for right. anything. But here I had it like all the way up almost to 12 when I was listening to it. Wow. And it's as if to emphasize and impress upon you the real volume of this instrument, I found the recording level is really low on this recording. I, w I thought, you know, they would compensate for it, but it, it does sound, you know, much quieter than even a harpsichord to me. Yeah, well, yeah, it is. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's so you can kind of you get an idea of just how quiet this instrument is. It's not really an instrument for performance, but I imagine that the um, that the microphone must have been just stuck in the instrument, you know, in in the um, yeah, you know, the, where the harp is inside the instrument. Now the clavichord is a it's a plucked instrument like the harpsichord. You have this sort of um, mechanism, you know, popping out and plucking a string like it's a guitar. Right, the piano is different; it's a hammered instrument, so it's it's more like percussive and the thing about the piano is for years and years um the romantics tried to hide the fact that it was a percussive instrument and you know, they would try to make it sound like a sort of um you know legato type mm. instrument chopin was really um instrumental in that it wasn't really until bartok that um he actually brought out the uh specifically percussive <laughs> um elements of the piano in this barbaric way that i really love because i'm just a barbarian really that's the Japanese people that I live with often uh, <laughs> remind me. <laughs> it's, I hate this. I'm sorry to say. Anyway, um, so anyway, Schiff is playing the clavichord on this sub instrument, and these are um, recordings of um, very popular pieces by Bach. We have the Capriccio sopra la lontananza del fratello dilettissimo. This is um, of a brother that's um, gonna go away. Right. It's a fairly popular piece, and it's um, bookended by the Chromatic Fantasy and Fugue, also a very difficult piece and one that's always fascinated me. And then in the middle, we have some pieces um, that all piano players have um, experienced, um, the inventions. The inventions and the sinfonia, in sinfonias, but the sinfonias are really the three-part inventions. The inventions are two-part inventions. And if you you study the piano, you kind of learn one or two of these pieces, if not all of them. Anyway, we're going to get into that. But let's um, go through this program. This is a two-disc set. It's not very long, though. Not a very long album. It's about 90 minutes long. It's just a little longer than could fit on a single CD. But um, it's divided into two CDs if you're going to listen on uh, streaming. And CD1 starts with the Capriccio, Sopra la lontananza del fratello dilettissimo, the departure of a beloved brother i guess that would be me in my family i'm the one who kind of left okay so this is the story of my life in this um bach composition 
Anyway, it starts out, adios, adagio. And the description is uh, a cajoling by his friends to deter him from his journey. Okay, now this instrument, the clavichord, one of the things that'll strike you about it first, it's quiet. Like, I didn't turn the volume up much. The first time I listened to this, I had the headphones on, I had it turned down really low, and I was like, just lying down in bed. It was like, just at the threshold of, you know, audibility. So I just wanted to get a sense of the instrument. And then later, when I kind of wanted to talk about this, I sort of um, turned the volume up and had it coming through the speakers. The instrument has kind of like a springy, like boingy kind of quality to a lot, especially the bass yeah. notes. And a fuzz too. Well, yeah. Okay. So there's a fuzz to the tone, but there are a lot of other different qualities to the tone too. The instrument itself isn't like the piano where it has a piano timbre, like no matter what note you play, and mm -hmm. they're all kind of even going up the instrument. The other extreme would be a prepared piano where you just don't know what's going to happen when you, <laughs> you push the key down. But the timbre of the instrument really varies from key to key very, very slightly. And this makes it, for me, really interesting. I really mm. enjoyed, enjoyed the, uh, the various kind of sounds that this instrument made, you know, quiet as they were. Anyway... It sounds kind of like what what the clavichord sounds like is kind of like a muffled harpsichord. Like if you had a harpsichord and you put like a blanket inside the harp part, <laughs> that's pretty much what this would sound like. Uh, the recording is quiet, but places the instrument very close as it has to. You would never be able to hear this otherwise. I imagine the microphone is inside the instrument here and shifts phrasing and rendering of the different voices is masterful and comfortable. Very appealing to the ear. Yeah, this is one of the great Bach players of my youth. And he's now, I don't know if he's 80 yet, but he's in his, I think he might be in his 60s. He makes the repeating lines um, reminiscent of the Postiglione, the fifth movement, very appealing and memorable, which is important to do because, okay, now this is the first track. In the fifth and sixth tracks, we're going to hear this um, the Postiglione call, which is the, the post, the person who's going to bring him to wherever he's going. It's, it's sort of like a brass sort of horn call, and you hear it a little bit in this first movement. The second movement, representation of various calamities that might befall him in foreign parts. Um, Schiff manages to get some seriousness out of this part as the friends try to scare the brother into staying. <laughs> I do like the sound of the bass and the clavichord here. I got to tell you, this was never going to work for me <laughs> because nothing, I really had to get out. You know, I wasn't really afraid of the, what was going to happen outside in the world. Anyway, third movement, Adagiosissimo, general lament of his friends. And this is amazing how well this spacious slow piece comes up with real feeling. Schiff manages the illusion of sustain very well via his phrasing. And that's really what I've loved about him for so many years. He's just really fantastic in his understanding of Bach and the phrasing. I'm really pulling out a lot of like elements in this that have really kind of drawing me to the piece and i think um if you've heard this piece played in the piano you might want to hear this and then go back to the piano mm. uh, version to kind of you, you'll get a lot more out of it i think there's a lot more sort of detail uh the fourth uh, movement is called uh, here come the friends as they see it cannot be otherwise and say farewell to him this is very brief many arpeggios fifth movement aria di postiglione the Postillone is heard at the four-second mark, and we hear an allusion to it in the first movement right at the end. It's charming, and Schiff plays it modestly. Some people really make it stand out, as it's easy to hear and can easily get annoying. Okay, <laughs> People uh, play it a lot. And then there's a fugue in the sixth movement, Al Imitazione di Posta. 
Schiff accents the repeated notes and makes them stand out. And there's an emphatic quality to the playing in this movement. It draws our attention, as I guess, to the Posillonis call, which peeks out on occasion. I enjoy the way this particular performance of this movement came across. Uh, Schiff managing a lot of expression through touch and accents. This really kind of made me like this piece a lot more. It's not a piece I'm terribly familiar with, although I've heard it several times. It's nice to hear it on this instrument. Okay, tracks 7 through 21 are the in, the two-part inventions, BWV 772 to 786, I guess. If you play the piano, you probably played at least the C major, uh, one of these. I played three of them, I remember. And uh, they're, they're sort of exercises to get the two hands to be separated from each other mm. on the piano. Uh, the first one, C major, man, this is always going to be the one that uh, the entire set is judged on because everybody has played it who's ever played the piano. And he um, Schiff ornaments this, uh, the first three lines of this, uh, the first lines of this famous work. It comes across as memorable and amiable at the slower speed that Schiff uses. Like I always remember this as being da 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 but he plays it at a slower speed than that. I like the way the quality of sound changes in the higher end of the instrument. There's an odd thing about this instrument, the clavichord, where you, the different registers have sort of different qualities to them. So it's it's almost like there are different instruments um, being played. I thought that was really mm. interesting. Anyway, number two, let me say muted light fingered opening that grows more solid and luminous as the piece progresses. Uh, so far, it's like hearing these often heard and played pieces for the first time. And uh, for that reason alone, you might want to hear them. Just the, the freshness that comes out of these. The high-end melody has a snapping quality on the strings. Number three in G, D major has a complex opening, played at a faster, but not very fast, speed. And all of the voices stick out. Number four, this takes off. Uh, the rapidly articulated notes each have a snap to their attack that makes the textures easy to follow. And Schiff's shaping of the phrases is very fine, as we would expect from him. You know, his wife, by the way, is a, a Japanese violinist. And he'll love it. I have it on um, some kind of authority, like the people I know here in Japan, that uh, Schiff um, likes playing, when he comes to Japan, he likes to play pachinko. Really? I may have mentioned that before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he has like he has a Japanese wife, so he'll come to Japan often and play. And uh, he apparently likes pachinko. Can you imagine? They're very but, noisy. That's, yeah, sort of bright, flashy kind of places. The, those the noise problems. and the smoke will drive you crazy. Yeah, yeah we had um, in my house when I was growing up. We had a pachinko machine from the seventies, I think. Yeah, They're I remember they were now. popular back then. Yeah, yeah, they had a lever then, but now they have like a knob that you kind of fire yeah. the balls out of. But I've always thought like. I've been in Japan for about 30 years now, and I've never been to a Pachinko oh, really? Parlor. I just can't bring myself to go into one of these places because they're just so bright and off-putting. Oh, I played twice, yeah. I should go once just for the experience, but I, I won, just can't. I uh, won mm. about 20,000 yen the first time I played. Yeah. And then uh, the next time I lost about <laughs> that much, so I, I just How does that happen, even, though? Because yeah. it seems like the first time people go, they always seem to win. I think they're kind of yeah. trying to get you, rope you in, but how do yeah. they know? You That's know? gambling, you know. Is but it? But I just can't handle the noise uh, anymore, so. Maybe you got to be like one of those like uh, billiards players where you go in and say, oh, I've never played billiards before, and then you just kind of, you know, <laughs> clean the table. I'm going to be looking for him in uh, whenever I walk by a pachinko place now. 
Maybe if we ever get to get together with him, we'll have to go together. Because I'm, I would like to go once, but I'm just too. I can't bring myself to walk into one of these places. Anyway, track eleven. This is number five in E flat major. Convention number five. Mid tempo, deliberately taken. I like the conversational quality of the bass, like someone chattering away as the right hand plays more slowly. Number six, another famous um, invention with the hands playing between each other's beats. Uh, Schiff's beautiful sense of uh, line makes this come across as more than exercise. By the way, when I say that uh, these are famous, I really mean that I've played them. (laughs) That's why they're famous, because I remember playing them. In the second half of the piece, again, I like the muted upper end of the instrument, the sound not sustaining at all. It's actually very ear-grabbing. Track 13, number 7 in E minor, the darker minor harmony registers vividly in this curving scalar piece. And this is something I've noticed. Every other invention is in a minor key. And Bach really makes sure that you hear that because right away you got that sort of dark quality to it. Now, the timbre of the clavichord has something to do with it as well, of course. Um, number eight in F major, that's track 14. Lively staccato bounce to the rhythm here. Clear articulation as we expect from Schiff and the instrument. The bass notes played staccato have a tone that we haven't heard before on the album. So we're always kind of being introduced to these new sounds that this instrument can make. And I'm not really sure if it's just the natural sound of the instrument itself or something that um, Schiff is doing to make that sound. I really don't know much enough about the instrument to be able to tell. Track 15, invention number nine, two-part invention number nine in F minor, which is reminiscent of number seven. It kind of sounds very similar. It's played at the same tempo, perhaps to highlight the similarity. Um, number 10 in G major, another lively staccato approach with clipped off high notes and staccato bass. This has a dance rhythm kept up admirably by Schiff, and this is going to be the case through the entire album. Track 17, number 11 in G minor, a quick tempo with noty lines in both voices, smoothly taken. And uh, number 12 has a very quick tempo and a thinner tone, very busy lines, articulation is clear. But the notes go by fast. Some interesting effects are caused by the staccato at the 42nd mark in that one. It's track 18. Track 19, as uh, invention number 13, another famous one that student pianists often play. I played it. Here it's played at a moderate tempo, uh, faster than they often hear it. And it's allowed to flow. Uh, it's nice to hear it this way. Track 20. Number 14 in B-flat major has a bright but clipped tone to the notes. It makes me wonder if there's a mechanical way shift can change the sound. It keeps the recording interesting. He keeps kind of getting a different sound on certain notes and sections. All lines are articulated with care towards their clarity. And number 15 in B minor is track 21. This is played as a march rhythm with strong accents in the bass. Uh, The march feel breaks up as the fugue plays out until we reach the beginning of the theme again. It's a clever way to get the listener to recognize the theme, putting it in that heavy kind of march rhythm. Tracks 23 to 25 are the four duets, BWV 802 to 805. Now, a duet is going to be like an invention. It has two contrapuntal voices in it. Number one in E minor um, has a thin tone. The opening theme is played memorably. Hearing this on the clavichord makes the lines stick in the mind as they come across sounding vivid and fresh on the instrument and with Schiff shaping them. Duet number two, the opening theme is hesitantly played before it really takes off with its repeated line in the lower voice. And it gets really chatty as the note values speed up. 
it sounds like there's a mute on the instrument for the next section at about the 50 second mark. I really have no idea. I really don't know what clavichords mm. are have on them, but it sounds like there's a mute there. Duet number three in G major has a gentle approach played with a bit of a hush over it with tiptoeing eighth notes in the right hand and a shyness to the bass tone. There's a bit of a dance quality to it. And uh, track 25, number four in A minor, duet number four. High speed line of the bass, the right hand comes in and matches it with those clip tones again that I rather enjoy. This one's naughty and intellectual, but don't let that put you off. Track 26 is the Richard Carr A Trois, I guess, from the musical offering uh, BWV 1079. This is a three-voiced fugue played at a very slow tempo. Increasing note values gradually speed the piece up. It's a contrapuntal marvel. This was written near the end of Bach's life. Uh, even by Bach's standards, it's pretty amazing. And registers well on the clavichord. It's refreshing to end the first disc with this piece. As the rest were rather simpler by comparison, this is a really complicated piece. Uh, this one is highly intellectual in its complex contrapuntal lines, all of which shift, of course, keeps mobile and audible. Okay, so we now go on to CD2, and this will be our indicated probably in the uh, streaming as well. This is a far more interesting uh, part of the program. Um, CD1 was kind of an intro to the instrument to me, but here we're hearing a lot of the articulations the instrument is capable of, I feel like. Now, tracks 1 through 15 are the sinfonias, or sinfonias, it should be, uh, BWV 787 to 801. The sinfonias are the three-part inventions. It's just another name for them. Um, I don't think I played any of these because I couldn't keep three voices going. I never got to that point <laughs> on the piano. It's a shame. Well, maybe the next life. Anyway, number one in C major. Um, it's amazing how the different registers of the clavichord each get their own sound. Bach writes this work so that the voices are mostly in separate registers, and you can kind of distinguish them pretty easily. It's like hearing this piece for the first time, really, on this recording, so I recommend you go right to this track. Number two in C minor has a triplet feel, and minor key contrasts a lot with the opening. It's played at a leisurely slowish tempo. There's an interesting rumbling trill in the bass at 55 seconds, grabbing the ear. And I'm wondering if that's the golden section marker, um, you know, the Fibonacci mm. series thing. That it, it may be, but I didn't look at the score and do the math. Anyway, I like the relaxed approach shift takes to this. Number three in D major has a Baroque dance quality at the opening. There are a lot of more dancey sort of rhythms to these um, three-part inventions of the or symphonias. So the um, Baroque dance quality of the theme is easily identifiable when it enters in the other voices because of that rhythm. Uh, Schiff is careful to keep the dance quality audible and lots of staccato in the bass make it stand out. Number four, in D minor. Uh, this comes across mostly as straightforward themes worked into the material. And there are some interesting dissonances in passing that the timbre of the instrument simultaneously softens and makes obvious. It's taken at a measured speed. Number five in E flat major has an interesting bass followed by two harmonized upper voices which answer. Shift shapes the themes as a repeating question followed by an eloquent response. Number six in E major, this is track six, has a scale theme with a dance quality to the end of the line, sort of like a slow jig played in triplets. Uh, Shift makes sure the rhythm stands out in these sections and some cool momentary distances in the coda. 
Number seven in E minor has the quality of a song. It's melodic. Can I say that in a, in a New York accent? Song. <laughs> anyway, it's melodic, and the accented way Shift plays this makes it sound like the lute is being invoked in the beginning. What we've he- been hearing on this album is how varied the sound of this clavichord can be. So this kind of has a lute quality to it, like a plucked instrument. Number eight in F major is a Baroque dance, strongly articulated with a full tone on the clavichord, uh, played with a lot of staccato. Number nine is a slow tempo with a spacious theme and lots of space in the harmony. And this piece has some odd harmony and intervals in it, which Schiff, of course, emphasizes, and which, of course, I really loved. Uh, Number 10 in G major has a flowing scalar theme with quick articulation in the flowing lines between voices. Impressive smoothness from Schiff here in this piece. Number 11 in G minor, the minor key really jumps out at you at the beginning. It has a winding theme where one voice answers the previous voice's offering. Uh, The piece is given an intimate conversational feeling by Schiff and the instrument. Number 12 in A major, a quicker dance rhythm with some quick figuration in the bass at times. And there are some pretty turns on the final cadence. Number 13 is a slow minor key piece, spacious with a lot of room for individual voices to be heard. Number 14 has a lighter allemande, like Baroque dance type quality to it. It gets busy in the inner voices and Schiff is able to mute those inner voices at times to draw attention to them. And finally, number 15 of B minor is a quick minor key work. Now, usually you kind of are struck by the really dark minor sort of harmony, but here you're really not just because of the articulation and the way Bach kind of arranges the uh, material. There's lots of fast articulation in the individual lines, which Shift plays with clarity and precision. There are lots of repeated notes in the accompaniment. And finally, the work I personally have been waiting for, the Chromatic Fantasia and Fugue, BWV 903. This is a work I've been like fascinated by mm. for a long, long time. The Fantasia on the clavichord, uh, we can hear every articulation of every note in this rather densely packed composition. I have the score of this. I think there are 64th notes uh, in it. And it's really hard to count when you're trying to figure out what the rhythm should be. But Schiff plays it at a slower speed than we often hear on the piano. And this makes every detail register. But it kind of lessens the dramatic quality of this piece that I've become familiar with from piano recordings. Listen to the quick run at a minute and 15 seconds. It doesn't seem to build up tension, and I don't blame Schiff for that. It's the instrument, and it's certainly interesting to hear the piece played in this way, probably the way Bach intended, or closer to it anyway. Um, The individual notes of the instrument don't all have a uniform timbre, so we get more of a sense of different shadings of tones, the change in the second half of the Fantasia at uh, 3 minutes and 30 seconds is sparser and has some fantastic passing harmonies on it that really stand out on this instrument. I like the unwinding quality shift gives to the end of the Fantasia. Listen to the last 30 seconds and really listen to this because it'll just make you think of this piece in a very different way. Track 17, the Fugue, part of the Chromatic Fantasia and Fugue, is taken after a pause and the theme has an odd dance quality to it registering at the ending appoggiatura-like figure. It seems to speed up as the other voices come in, and the harmony here gets pretty dense, 
as the voices are added on. Again, the clavichord's tones aren't uniform on each key, so sometimes we get ringing tones, sometimes muted, and I'm not sure how much of this is Schiff himself controlling the tone, but it's really interesting. I like the emphatic resolve just after the third minute, strongly articulated by Schiff. There are highly emphatic ending chords to the fugue. So, even turned up, this recording comes across as muted and quiet, which is how it should be. The clavichord being a quiet instrument. Andre Schiff brings his brilliant Bach playing from the piano to the clavichord with a lifetime of experience and a keen ear uh, for how the sound of the clavichord registers in the ear of the listener. Fans of this pianist won't want to miss this. Um, I'm certainly glad I heard it. Um, he was one of the great Bach players of my younger years, as I mentioned, and remains so in a now crowded field. It's nice to have such authoritative recordings of these works articulated so clearly on a period instrument we don't hear much of. Pianists who play the inventions might want to hear this for insights into the quality of individual pieces provided by both the performances and the timbre of the instrument. So if this interests you, I would definitely hear it. It's certainly a really great performance. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting to hear these works on this instrument because the works are familiar to most people and then you'll really just focus on the sort of uniqueness of the timbres you're going to get here. The tone is, as I said, quite fuzzy and interesting to hear, and it makes you experience the works differently. Although this probably won't become my preferred version of listening to these works. No, but I'll definitely revisit it, though, I can't yeah. say. It's also amazing that Schiff really achieves a high level of expression and amazing speed, despite the limitations of the instrument. And in addition to the clavichord being quiet, I found the recording level is really low, as if to further impress upon you how small the output of volume of the instrument would be. One other thing I wanted to mention to listeners yeah. who were thinking, you know, uh, clavichord, what's that? Maybe people who listen to popular music of our generation or a little earlier would know the clavinet, which is actually an electrically amplified clavichord. Oh, my God. <laughs> and it was manufactured by the Honer Company from 64 to 1982. And if you know Stevie Wonder's Superstition, that's that you know, interesting fuzzy sound you hear there wow. right at the beginning. And so it, it became kind of popular in rock, uh, kind of funk and reggae music. And of course, now you can replicate that tone on a synthesized keyboard. But there are some people who still seek out those instruments and there's an industry maintaining them because they're no longer produced. But that's what the clavinet was, uh, an amplified version of that. Made by Honer, makers of those uh, harmonicas that we used to play when we were yeah. kids. It was invented by a fellow named Ernst Zacharias, and uh, <laughs> it was only made in uh, West Germany by Honer. Yeah, so. I wonder what it would be like to work at the <laughs> the Honer you know, company, you know? Just yeah. the name of it just kind of evokes somebody odd, sort of uh, you know, outside of the mainstream sort of things, yeah. you know? And, uh, well, keep Honer in mind because uh, we're going to come back oh, to Oh, yeah, we are in the jazz Honer section. at the end of the program. We yes. are. Okay. Well, anyway, before that, though, we have the accordion section of this classical part of the uh, program. And this album, next album I'm going to talk about is uh, Polish Accordion Concertos, played by Klaudius Baran and uh, the Polish Radio Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Michał Klauza. 
and this is on the Naxos label. This album came out in late 2022, but was recorded in 2015 and 2016. Oh. Naxos, what are you doing? What are you <laughs> sitting on these recordings for? They should have put yeah, out there. It's not then. the first time, yeah. It's not the first time. They do this quite a bit. You know another company that does this? Or another uh, studio? ECM. Although oh. those Shift albums were recorded, I think, last year. Anyway, the accordion concerto is a relatively new phenomenon in mm. Poland, as it turns out. It started in 1966 in Poland, and now there are more than 90 Polish concertante works for the accordion. Wow. <laughs> That's not that many, though. Really, it's a lot for that period of time. But yeah. it's if you think about how many piano concertos there are, that's it's really not that many. What the works on this album have in common are stylistic elements of folk music without mm-hmm. distinct ethnic references, traditional Polish dances, and of course, Astor Piazzolla's Nuevo Tango, which itself was based on a conglomerate of various influences and traditions. Mm. He's very international, is is Piazzolla. Anyway, the first piece on this album, tracks one through three, is by a composer named, uh, <laughs> i got to say this name, Marcin Blazaviks. And um, Blazaviks, I guess. It's his accordion charter from the year 2012. And let me tell you, prepare to um, put all of your preconceptions about the accordion aside, because this really <laughs> is very different than anything you would expect. It's a three-movement work, and the first movement is marked Andante Ma Agitato. It starts with a chugging rhythm, ending with a sustained chord. A repeating, eerie string pattern follows. The accordion comes in surprisingly at the 32-second mark with a startling gesture, loudish and rather ominous, like the opening. I should say loud or loud-ish. Okay. The opening comes across fairly powerfully, which is something I didn't expect from an accordion. We're actually worlds away from Piazzolla in the opening of this piece. After two minutes, the music gets really aggressive with a chugging rhythm. In fact, that chugging rhythm is going to be like a real hallmark of this piece. And the accordion plays aggressive upward scales. Again, you wouldn't think the accordion was capable of these emotions, but here they are. The accordion's solo spot over the fast train rhythmic pattern after 3 minutes and 20 seconds is pretty enjoyable. The accordion has some aggressive patterns in the fourth minute, then it urgently converses with the violins as the low strings keep the rhythm chugging. The pacing of this movement is excellent and has a bit of a thrilling feel to it. Uh, The rhythm has a thrilling rock and roll type thrust to it. This is due to the composer as well as the excellent orchestral playing. I mean, they could have just you know, beat time on this, but they did. Mm. They really kind of gave it an edge, and I really appreciated that. There's a vivid recording, too. It's recorded very close, adding a bit of harshness that is appropriate to the music, really. It kind of comes across as like a light bulb with no shade on it, so you get that harsh light. (laughs) The movement ends on a sustained chords, and it's a really exciting movement. I actually posted this on our Facebook site because I thought it was so great. Second movement is Allegretto, and it starts with a steady forward-moving rhythm. Bowing occurs on the four beats of the measure in the strings, and the accordion is in the 39-second mark it comes in, dripping a ghostly arpeggiated theme onto the orchestra. At the 1 minute 25 second mark, the bass picks up and plays its four to a bar rhythm more aggressively as the accordion plays above. In the second minute, the rhythm dissipates and there are droning chords underlying the accordion's continued upward arpeggio line. 
By 3 minutes and 45 seconds, the rhythmic thrust starts again, and the accordion seems to be playing a folk-like theme. The music gets more aggressive, then suddenly quietens to distant pizzicati, punctuated by two chord outbursts from the orchestra. The accordion starts a solo at about the 5 minutes and 35 second mark, and plays changing chords in a repeating pattern. At the 6 minute and 10 second mark, and after... We hear the ghostly strings again and the four-beat pattern in the bass. The accordion comes in with its light, wafting theme. There's an edge to the tone of the orchestra's response to the accordion's lines. Listen to the in the seventh minute, and the piece ends with the accordion's last note drifting off as the four-beat rhythm simply ends. I use this word thrust a lot in this piece because it re- it really does have like a sort of like aggression i think it's a good mm. word to describe this um piece anyway the third movement allegro con fuoco has an urgent aggressiveness to the rhythm at the opening the accordion comes in playing what sounds like a dance melody again we get fantastic forward thrust there's that word again from the lower strings to propel the music and create some excitement okay so when i hear the word thrust you might be thinking of uh maybe something sexual, but I think I'm kind of going for something like, like a, an engine, you know, kind of um, hmm. like pistons firing or something like that. It kind of has that sort of um, momentum to it. At a minute and 40 seconds, we're hearing a melody in the orchestra that recalls tango themes. At the two minute and 10 second mark, we're hearing what's called bellows technique in the accordion as the instrument hyperventilates out its repeating chords. The, you see, you have these chords in... There's a, like a quick back and forth movement. Yeah. It would be referred to as bellows technique. This is a new uh, idea for me, actually. The third minute is full of rhythmic thrust. We hear circling patterns in the accordion as we approach the fourth minute. After this, the accordion starts playing a dance-like theme. The harmony in the orchestra rises, building tension. There are some exciting harsh chords in the orchestra while this is going on. Over the bass rumbling, the accordion plays its theme. There's an excellent scalar pattern in the accordion and orchestra at 5 minutes and 55 seconds. Make sure you hear that. The accordion joins the strings in building upward moving tension until we reach a sudden, unexpected end. It's a thrilling piece all the way through and really a must hear. This this piece is a mm. real discovery. And then we have two more concertos coming up. The middle one is, eh, it's okay. This is Bronislav Kazimierz Przybylski. Przybylski, sorry. Can I buy a vowel? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. This is his Concerto Polacco from 1973. Now, what we need to keep in mind here is the year. This is like one of the earlier um, accordion works. Um, The one we just heard was from 2012. So he's had a lot to build on by then. Anyway, the first movement, Allegro Scherzando, starts lightly with a cheerful folk-like flow. Uh, Themes are introduced... Then the accordion comes in repeating the first of these themes at 49 seconds, really adding an entirely new dimension to the the familiar timbres of the opening orchestration. The opening theme goes through several iterations and extensions as the accordion and orchestra mix timbres. At the 3 minute and 35 second mark, we break away from the opening theme. The music quietens and there's a solo cadenza for the accordion with some impressive two hands on the keyboard technique, bellows technique, and keyboard speed. This section is a showpiece for the soloist, Claudius Baran. It's very declamatory. It's not flowing like the opening, though. In the fifth minute, the opening theme returns. There's a buildup of tension through the harmony and increased speed to the end, 
with a quick descent leading to the satisfying final chord. Second movement, tempo rubato, molto espressivo. The accordion opens this movement with a thin tone that thickens in a crescendo-like fashion. Uh, he really has a solo until the 1 minute and 17 second mark when the dark lower end of the orchestra plays a foreboding theme, wave-like, in its motion. The accordion responds solo again with chords and a tail-ending phrase. The orchestra and accordion trade lines, the accordion coming in solo, answering the orchestra. They sometimes intermingle, and the music gets a bit disturbing harmonically. Listen to the accordion's harmony in the fourth minute and the sludgy patterns in the bass that's accompanying. This movement remains foreboding throughout, with the accordion soliloquizing in a worrying way. Listen to the sixth minute for that. The movement ends with four thin accordion notes followed by some kind of resolve in the high end. The third movement, presto, has booming timpani followed by rushing strings. The accordion comes in to complete the idea begun by the orchestra. There's some great accordion technique in this movement. Listen to the use of the bellows after the 1 minute and 30 second mark in the accordion's descending patterns. The rushing strings in the beginning come back quickly at around the 2 minute and 53 second mark in this rather brief movement. It feels like the material is heading to an end rather early on, but that ending is extended a bit with extended phrases and a buildup of tension until the mighty release provided by the final tonic chord. The last concerto on this is called Concerto Classico, and it's by Mikolaj Majkusiak. And again, apologies to all my all of our Polish friends <laughs> if we're not pronouncing these names. A new language to butcher this Correctly, week yes. Polish. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Majkusiak was 17 years old when he wrote this piece. Oh, my. Yeah. Wow. What was I doing when I was 17? I was like still trying to get a girlfriend, I think. Um, You're still trying today. Still trying today, in fact. <laughs> Any ladies, uh, write in. Yeah, please write music. in. I'm a handsome guy. <laughs> anyway, the classical in the title shouldn't be taken too literally. Classical styles are treated ironically in this concerto, and indeed they are. This is actually a pretty rhythmic and exciting piece, just like the opening uh, concerto that we heard. Um, the first movement, Allegro Ben Ritmico, has a timpani role for the opening, and the accordion comes in right away with agitated arpeggio figures. There are harsh chords in the orchestra, making for dramatic, attention-grabbing opening. Uh, the orchestra part is loud and powerful, as the accordion, often answering the orchestral statement, plays prettily and sometimes agitatedly. At a minute and 47 seconds, there's some bellows technique on display, at 2 minutes and 38 seconds, there's a new section as the music quietens. The accordion plays with the bellows technique, and the orchestra plays the legato line in response. The agitated rhythm appears again at 3 minutes and 15 seconds in the accordion. And here, there's some impressive rapid repeated notes and a long run to a high note. At the 3 minutes and 40 second mark, the accordion is playing a rapid repeated note in accompaniment as the orchestra melodizes. The accordion then grabs the spotlight for some virtuoso keyboard work. There's a powerful ending with the violin playing a rapid downward figure as the orchestra crescendos towards the final big chord. The second movement is labeled Lento Dramatico. It's the slow movement. And the accordion opens this movement solo with an attention-grabbing dissonant line. It settles down into something more traditional by the 45-second mark. Then at a minute and five seconds, it starts in an arpeggiated bass line. 
with trills in the keyboard hand. An upward arpeggiated figure starts in the second minute where the orchestra comes in. The orchestra echoes the line. There's a great reedy growl in the accordion's bass end at 2 minutes and 57 seconds. There are some great sounds in this piece, like the uh, In the Blasowicz piece, but not like it's not like that piece at all. A gentler rocking theme starts at the 3 minutes 30 second mark. Then by the 4 minutes and 23 second mark, there's a crescendo tension buildup in the orchestra with rapid descending arpeggios in the accordion. The accordion keeps a running commentary going over the orchestral rhythm. The accordion's high end is very pretty over strings hitting their strings with the bows at 5 minutes and 10 seconds. It's a remarkable moment. The slow 4-4 rocking rhythm comes back towards the latter half of the fourth minute, and the accordion gets a solo over a harp playing the arpeggiated bass line at 6 minutes and 30 seconds. A pretty line at 7 minutes and 30 seconds turns into a harsh buildup of tension, with the accordion playing some impressive octave figures at peak tension. Bellows technique over a droning bass note leads us to the end of this movement. Did you get that left-right panning on the kind of bellows thing? I was listening in headphones to this yeah. one, and you sort of suddenly get this kind of uh, hypnotic left-right oh. panning. I don't know if they... They must have done it intentionally with like a, a stereo microphone for the... Uh, Yes. accordion. I thought that was pretty interesting. It's funny. I didn't notice that here, but I noticed it on one of the jazz albums, which oh, we'll okay. talk about when we get to. Mm. That's pretty interesting, though, because um, a lot of these um, setups are like two mic setups, so they're kind of like ambient mics, kind of yeah, left and right. And you say it might be intentional, but could it possibly be the accordion player, like just kind of twisting his waist back and forth? I just don't know. To... <laughs> it really struck me as something you don't usually hear yeah. in a classical recording, you know. I'll have to listen to that again. Check it out again. Yeah, man. I'll do that. And you do that too, listener, and let me know. The third movement is uh, Presto con Fuoco, and the previous movement moves directly into this one with a mid-tempo chugging rhythm. They they like those chugging rhythms, these yeah. uh, Polish accordion uh, composers. Anyway, banging chords have the accordion playing descending figures over it. There are more impressive virtuosic lines by the accordion in the first minute, uh, there's an impressive orchestral trill at about the 3 minutes and 20 second mark and a cool croaking bass note in the accordion at 3 minutes and 30 seconds <laughs> that I really enjoyed, I have to say. I actually didn't realize that the accordion had such a high range as we hear in the latter half of the second minute. It made my ears ring. Aggressive rhythm continues after this and with the accordion playing a theme with lots of displaced accents interesting orchestration of this movement and really throughout this work though it really stands out for me here the orchestration the accordion gets a cadenza at the end in which he plays an excitable rhythm based passage on chords there's an impressive bellows technique again and the orchestra builds up a wild pattern and the piece ends on an unexpected accented chord that doesn't resolve the tension built up it's a really excellent piece so in this case i really liked the first and the last pieces the middle one was very good, but I think the two really exciting ones are the first and the last. It's all music that will make you rethink the accordion. It doesn't have any of the Piazzolla tango sound or the romantic sunny day in Paris feel that we often associate with the accordion. Mm. Uh, the first piece creates genuine rhythmic excitement in the aliveness of the orchestra's playing. The thrust and tension don't let up until the end. It's got the drive of a rock song. The Majkusiak piece, the very last one, is also very exciting uh, with some uh, different techniques 
for the accordion and a similarly aggressive rhythmic approach. And the middle Przybilski piece is also very fine, if more conservative and less exciting than the other two, probably due to the fact that it was written so much earlier when the sorts of adventurous accordion techniques heard in the other two pieces weren't in such widespread use. The accordion soloist, Kladuj Baran, is a revelation throughout this album, showing not only amazing technique in all aspects of the instrument, but surprising energy and imagination in producing some of the sounds he gets from the instrument. The Polish Radio Symphony Orchestra keeps the highly rhythmically generated energy taut throughout under the baton of Michał Klausa. This album is a real find, a revelation to me of what music for the accordion can be. It's exciting playing of exciting music, and I urge you to hear it, listeners. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting kick to hear the accordion with the orchestra. I haven't listened to any kind of concertos by accordion before, so hearing it with orchestra is really interesting in the first place. How are you going to work out what the accordion does and the orchestra supporting it? It's just two combinations that you don't normally experience. So that alone was interesting to me. All these different expressive techniques on the accordion that I hadn't heard before because, you know, I'm used to hearing an entango or some kind of folk ethnic music and then to hear all this virtuosity and interesting sounds. And so the whole album is full of that kind of stuff that's really, you know, engaging and something fresh. But I'll give uh, my preference is the same as yours. I'll go for, if you're only going to listen to one, listen to the Blazowitz, the first one, yeah, just because it has really- that. Yeah, really exciting rhythmic drive and um, lots of forceful passages. It makes the accordion sound really big and powerful, and uh, it's exciting all the way through. Although the other ones aren't bad at all. And, uh, of course, this uh, last one, now that I know it was written when he was only 17, that's Jeez. really impressive. Can you imagine so. your pal in high school writes this accordion concerto that's really <laughs> aggressive like that? Like, I wouldn't know how to talk to him anymore. I don't know. Anyway. The third classical album tonight is going to be a contemporary composer, Arturs Maskats, who's Latvian, and again, apologies if I haven't said his name correctly. He was born in 1957, so he's a little older than us. And this is a, a program of his works, Accordion Concerto, a Tango, Cantus Diatonicus, and uh, a piece called My River Runs to Thee, based on uh, an Emily Dickinson poem. The accordionist is Ksenija Sidorova, Sidorova, I guess, uh, Latvian National Symphony Orchestra conducted by Andres Poga, and this is on the Ondine label. Uh, the booklet notes claim that Mascot's music is instantly recognizable for the large interval leaps in his melodies. Hmm. I I don't know. I'll believe them, I right. guess, but I didn't yeah. really. Uh, this didn't really register so much with me, probably because I'm hearing this for the first time though. Okay, the first um, piece on this is a tango. It's a piece called Tango, composed in the year 2002. And the accordion soloist here is Arturs Novik, so it's not the soloist listed on the, um, on the album. This apparently is one of the most popular classical music works in Latvia. Uh, in huh. fact, the booklet goes so far as to rank it as the second most popular work of Latvian symphonic music. <laughs> How would you know that? <laughs> anyway, that's why it's instantly recognizable. Well, behind Only if you're in Latvia, yeah. Yeah, the the most popular piece of uh, Latvian orchestral music is Emil's Darzan's Vals Melancholique. Apparently, oh. I'll just have to take their uh, word for that. The work was born from the impressions of a journey to Italy, 
<laughs> Not Argentina. <laughs> I just want to mention. Okay. In writing this piece, Mascot said he wants to do for the tango what Ravel did for the waltz. Now, personally, I don't hear this quality to it because I think of the waltz. Um, Ravel wrote two really famous orchestral waltzes, uh, especially La Valse, which mm. kind of has the deconstruction of the waltz at the end. And of course, Valse Noble Sentimental. Anyway, it's a highly appealing work, I have to say. It starts with a honking, syncopated figure in the orchestra with a ticking woodblock percussion instrument followed by swirling strings. The tango theme begins at the 48-second mark with a single instrument playing the melody with no harmony. Uh, strings take it over as the ticking accompaniment continues. Tension builds. Uh, this sounds less like a tango than a big-boned orchestral work with full tonal color. A sweet high violin takes over at the 3 minute and 9 second mark with chiming accompaniment. Excellent use of the orchestra's timbres in this piece. At the 3 minutes and 35 second mark, we can clearly hear the accordion for a moment. We may have heard it earlier mixed in with the orchestra, but I might have missed that. It's got a thin, high organ-like quality here. At the 4 minutes and 4 second mark, a more aggressive section starts with a new theme in the strings. There's a clear tango melody by the 5 minute 30 second mark. It's coming in and out so far, and here it breaks up, and we hear the rather dissonant accordion at 5 minutes and 55 seconds. There's a pause, then the accordion plays a soft melody over intriguing percussion sounds. There's a solo violin providing a counter melody as well. A beautiful orchestration here. At the 8 minute and 6 second mark, a more aggressive galloping rhythm is heard in a tango rhythm. Uh, it builds tension in a slow crescendo. At the 10 minute and 16 second mark, the approach to a climax is interrupted and a gentle sad accordion solo is heard. The accordionist doesn't resolve the last note. The full orchestra does. Mescats does. I want to mention this whole um, interrupted climax is going to be a pretty uh, common occurrence in Mascots mm. music. I've kind of noticed this throughout this recording. Anyway, we get to the major work next, tracks two through five, the accordion concerto subtitled What the Wind Told Over the Sea. And this was written in the year 2021, so it's pretty much hot off the press. Mm. It was written during the pandemic when the sea journey was, for the most part, possible only through thoughts and dreams. So that's what's being evoked here. The first movement, Andante Misterioso, uh, starts with a harp. We hear the accordion come in and take over the harp's arpeggio. It's a really pretty idea. The entire movement is fairly quiet with occasional orchestral outbursts that are quickly silenced. Percussion enters the picture at around a minute and 58 seconds as the strings take the lead. At 2 minutes and 24 seconds, the accordion bursts in and takes over the lead with emphatic chords. The movement decrescendos and drifts quietly into the next movement without a pause, and that movement is allegretto. The accordion has its first real thematic material here, a melodic figure with a tango flavor to it. In fact, this has more of a tango flavor to it than the piece called Tango <laughs> that we started this yeah. recording with. Anyway, the tension builds and the full orchestra comments loudly on the orchestra's themes. At a minute and 52 seconds, the orchestra changes tack and builds up with a crescendoing chord that turns into a swirling pattern early in the second minute. Winds and brass play thematic material. In the third minute, the music quietens and the accordion peaks in for an occasional comments on the thematic material, handing from strings to winds to percussion. As in the tango, 
we hear highly intriguing orchestration. The accordion comes in with a more aggressive rhythmic theme and starts building up tension. The music suddenly slows and we get high accordion notes at 5 minutes and 30 seconds with chiming percussion accompaniment and shimmering strings. There's a rush to the last chord, which the accordion responds to with a movement-ending dissonant chord. The third movement is labeled blues. A bass figure in the percussion marks time as the winds, then the accordion, play the melancholy theme. Makats has a good ear for the intoxicating sounds that percussion instruments can make. We hear them all over this album, really. Mm. We hear more of them in this movement, especially chimes and wood blocks. The accordion has much of the lead here. His tone sounds like an organ at times. I have to say, this doesn't sound like a blues at all, despite the 4 4 time <laughs> that I'm counting. Uh, the music becomes more ethereal in the last minute. And at the end, the orchestra builds up to a climax that ends in the next movement. And we go right into a cadenza uh, in the fourth movement. At the one minute mark, it starts a pulsing rhythm, the accordion does, with a theme over it. The orchestra is now heard, and the accordion winds down with a virtuosic figure. The orchestra establishes a quick repeated note rhythm starting at around a minute and 35 seconds. At the 2 minute and 23 second mark, there's a light, momentary jazzy rhythm that quickly turns to figuration and an approach to a climax that isn't quite reached. The accordion contributes to the buildup of tension in the third minute. At 3 minutes and 31 seconds, the approach is interrupted by a pause and a shimmering figure is heard in the strings. At about the 3 minute and 50 second mark, the accordion comes in and plays a fragmentary theme. At 4 minutes and 10 seconds, there's a dreamy melody over accompaniment that marks time. The piece ends mysteriously with a cloudy chord that resolves to a quiet tonic. Track 6, Cantus Diatonicus, composed in 1982. This was uh, Mascot's thesis when he graduated from the Latvian Academy of Music. The work was conceived as a prayer to Mascot's godmother, who was ill at the time of composition, and she recovered after this and lived many more years after. Uh, perhaps this prayer helped. Who knows? At the end of the work, the Latvian orphan song, The Sun Flowed, is heard in the Celestas. You'll just have to take my word for that if you're not Latvian. <laughs> this starts with chiming percussion. The theme that appears in the reeds is appealing. And I should say, Muscats comes up with a lot of appealing themes and orchestration throughout the album. The tone suddenly becomes dramatic in the second minute as strings build up tension and resolve to a more passionate pleading theme at 2 minutes and 20 seconds. This resolves to a big brass chord, putting me in mind of Wagner. There are some chimes and a quick decrescendo. At 4 minutes and 34 seconds, we hear a repeating three-note figure, first in the chiming percussion, then the winds. At the five-minute mark, the strings bring this to a big climaxing chord, and in the last minute, we hear wisps of material we heard earlier leading to the end. Very pretty orchestration in this piece, uh, especially in the gently chiming percussion. This must have really been some thesis. Give this guy his degree. Absolutely. The last work on the album is called By River Runs to Thee, written in 2019, subtitled Homage to Emily Dickinson, the American poet of the 19th century. The title, My River Runs to Thee, comes from the first line of a poem by Emily Dickinson, and this is the whole poem. It goes, My river runs to thee, blue sea, wilt welcome me. My river waits reply, O sea, look graciously, I'll fetch thee brooks 
from Spotted Nook's Say, See, Take Me. A lot of E sounds in that Mm. uh, poem. Anyway, it starts with woody percussion and a distant melody in the clarinet. Strings come in with a high chord, creating a halo effect in the melody. A gradual crescendo has been occurring since the opening, building up enormous tension that is not resolved, but deflected away to a new key or key area at around the 2 minutes and 43 seconds mark. This is kind of a hallmark of uh, Muscat's style, the unresolved crescendo, you know, the climax that isn't reached. The music calms here, and we hear mysterious wind chords and a high piccolo melody, I think. I think that's a piccolo. It emerges for a while in the fourth minute. Then in the fifth minute, the texture turns to something more rhythmic and wave-like, with various fragmented themes playing over that. It's a very pleasant section of the piece, and it sounds like it's in 6-8 time. At the seven minute and eight second mark, there's a pause, then a darker, more mysterious section begins with quiet but harsh wind chords. The percussion is back, outlining a rhythm picked up by the bass. Low reedy winds play thematic material and the violins respond. This section crescendos to some unstable, tension-building material. By the 10 minute and 24 second mark, we've reached peak tension, and it isn't released again. Instead, the music suddenly quietens and there are rushing bass lines with sustained thematic material heard above. Rushing waters beneath, stable sky above is the image that I got from this. Uh, the music becomes unstable again and crescendos in the 11th minute. There are stabbing chords as we go forward. The next attempt at a climax is at 12 minutes and 18 seconds and we get a chord that stops the music with a metallic percussion note ringing out. There's a pause. The percussion of the opening begins again and we hear a theme on a reed instrument, which is probably an English horn. The cello takes over its melody, and the music is very quiet now, mysterious and calm. There's a quick buildup of tension starting in the 14th minute, but it dissolves into starlit, twinkling percussion with a sustained string chord playing quietly underneath. The piece ends on a sustained strings that naturally fade out without a sense of finality. And that's it. And I have to say, it looks like I found another Latvian composer after Petrus Vasks to keep my ear out for. This was an enjoyable album of contemporary works. Muscats has a good sense of melody that catches the ear when he wants to, as can be heard in the opening tango. I can understand why it's such a popular piece in Latvia. It really should start traveling the world. The major work here is the accordion concerto, of course, and the accordion isn't an instrument like the piano or violin where you can hear the soloist making a real effort. Uh, The effort is there, but the accordion by its nature doesn't sound like the soloist is pushing its limits, though it probably is, especially in the fourth movement. Muscat's Cantus Diatonicus is straightforward and immediately appealing, despite its being a work written as a thesis, and the final work, My River Runs to Thee, is atmospheric and at times dramatic. Muscat's has a nuanced sense of orchestral tone color that draws the ear readily. The music is all inviting, and I recommend you hear this and get to know a contemporary composer you've probably not heard of if you live outside of Latvia. For a contemporary collection of works, I thought this is really easily approachable. You know, people who think, oh no, contemporary, <laughs> scary. No, this is... Uh, You're going to get those people back. Looking at my notes, the adjectives that come up most often again and again are colorful, dreamy, and rich in timbre. So I'm starting to get an idea that there is kind of a Latvian 
tonal kind of character ah. you know, with Vasques and that. And it's just a really nice blend of sounds and use of the tones of the orchestra. I found everything here really pretty and having a real dreamy yeah, kind of too. nature to yeah. it. And sometimes it gets really thick and dense, but in a really good way. And then the different colors reveal themselves. Yeah, I just enjoyed all of these pieces. They're all a little bit different, but I guess I'll have to listen to more of his music to know yeah. if it's instantly identifiable. But it's really um, enjoyable. And again, listen to the accordion blending with the orchestra was interesting. Well, I'm getting used to his composition style. It's just really flowing through all the different movements. So I'm interested to hear more from this composer. Yeah, and this content in there too. It's not just pretty, it's not just surface no, music, yeah. although there is a lot of real surface beauty to it. Mm. So I recommend it. New composer yeah. for you listeners. Mascots. Yeah, let's hear some more. I'm curious as to what else he's uh, written. Yeah, I am now too, to be honest. Mm. Yeah. Over to jazz time. And we're going to keep the squeeze me theme going <laughs> for uh, two thirds of the program anyway. And when Mike told me, hey, we're going to do an accordion episode. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> and, uh, you know, once in a while. I get some accordion uh, recordings uh, come through, and I happen to have a couple. Uh, I had one more that I didn't care for so much, but uh, these two are, are quite interesting and enjoyable, and we're going to go off into some sort of uh, diversions in musical styles hmm. for both of them. Indeed. And we're going to start out with a recording called A Thousand Pebbles, and this is by the Ben Rosenblum Nebula Project, and the label is listed as One Trick Dog Records. What is our One Trick Dog? I'd like to know. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, but this came courtesy of Ann Braithwaite, who uh, sends us uh, promotional recordings. And I had this one. We had this one for a while. Yeah. And I, when I first heard it, I said, this is really interesting, but what am I going to pair it with? I had no idea. And then, and then Mike um, to the rescue. There you go. Mike to the rescue. <laughs> and so it sees an episode. I'm kind of glad I dug into it a little deeper because it's quite interesting. I thought so too. Hmm. Yeah, so this came out in February, February 10th, it was uh, released. So Rosenblum is a New York native, born 1993, so he's still quite young. He's got a BA from Columbia University, and while he was doing that, he was studying piano at Juilliard with Bruce Barth, a yeah. pianist that we like a lot. Pretty and fantastic also, pianist, yeah. Yeah, Frank Kimbrough. And I uh, started to focus on accordion as well about seven years ago, studying with Brazilian master Vitor Gonçalves. And this is his fourth album as a leader. And I think it's the second one from this Nebula project, first recording in 2020, Kites and Strings. And now here, get ready. You've got influences <laughs> from Bulgarian vocal polyphony, Northern Brazilian party music, Afro-Caribbean rhythms, and traditional Irish music. And you'll be able to pull them all out when you hear yeah, this. with a lot of interesting jazzy material as well. As part of this Nebula project, we've got Rosenblum on piano and accordion, Wayne Tucker on trumpet, who impressed me a lot on this recording, Rafael Rosa on guitar, Jasper Dutz on various reeds, uh, alto sax and bass clarinet in there, which always sounds good. Uh, Marty Jaffe on bass, Ben Zwig on drums, and Javier del Castillo on tenor sax and flute. Hmm. And flute in the mix too, 
gives this uh, recording some nice uh, timbral variety that I like. And we're going to start out with an interesting one. <laughs> There's a lot going on in these pieces, so I'll have to just sort of uh, summarize uh, some of the events that happen. We start with Catamaran, track one, and this begins with some solo piano from Rosenblum. Uh, there's a left-hand ostinato to get things going. It seems to be in 4-4, four, four, but the rhythmic figure has this fun and tricky little skip to it that adds anticipation. And he adds a bright right-hand melody on top of that with nice spaces between his phrases. Jeffy's bass joins in, adding some deep pulse, and Zwig adds some cymbals to that. The horn lines with soft stabs on the upbeats come in for more sense of forward motion as the melody goes round, with the guitar doubling the line as well. The horns get some more flowing lines into improvised exchanges that become conversational. Uh, sounds like both tenor and alto sax, so I assume it's uh, Dutz on alto here. The harmonies create a kind of uplifting mood, and the horns join together again on more flowing lines. Things get soft again after four minutes or so for some relaxed solo piano without the ostinato. Bass and cymbals join in, adding steady movement as Rosenboom builds up the intensity with running lines. It sounds like here it's gotten into an alternating 5-8 and 6-8 kind of pattern, or 11-8. Uh, the horns add backing lines, building it up more, and the next section becomes more drivingly rhythmic with staccato horn lines over subdivided piano chords and a real insistent bass and drum kind of playing. And it seems now to be more evened out into 6-8 or 12-8. The horn lines get into more moving lines with syncopated interval starts, and then suddenly you're going to end up in Ireland with an accordion jig. This was really uh, weird. Yeah, the others <laughs> joined in on that dance. It sounds like some flute on the melody too, to a very happy ending. So lots of fun changes and a very interesting arrangement to get things started. If you thought that was odd, look what's coming up next. Yes, Boy, uh, this, this was really, is really cool. Bulgares, yeah. uh, which I guess is uh, taking us to Bulgaria. And speaking of 11-8 time, that's what this one starts it, off. Really, I couldn't with, count yeah. this. I couldn't figure this out. Some okay. rhythmic and uh, modal accordion uh, from Rosenblum setting up a very ethnic mood. Then bass and drum join in. Also some cool, grungy-sounding rhythm guitar from Rosa in yeah. there. And then suddenly Tucker is up for a trumpet solo while the accordion uh, switches to softer swelling. And you could almost be in a Morricone movie with this yeah. uh, theme that's coming out I called here. This is, I said this is more Spanish, though, than Yeah, it gets a Spanish yeah. tinge to it. The changing harmonies are very cool, and Dutz has some clarinet working lines under the trumpet as well as some cool rhythmic accordion figures going on. Then the accordion and clarinet take the original opening section idea again into an improvised trumpet solo from Tucker, which turns into an exchange with accordion and then an accordion solo. Uh, Rosa gets some searing guitar solo lines with uh, trumpet on top of them, and one more reset with the accordion and clarinet back into the trumpet melody and a finish with the opening figures. Uh, really fun and uh, interesting assortment of this ideas. This is a really interesting uh, piece of music, <laughs> I have to say. Then we're going to move on to sort of the centerpiece, the Thousand Pebbles. It's kind of a um, suite here. And uh, the notes that we got, it says it draws partly on Rosenblum's memories of attending synagogue during high holidays, but he thinks of the suite as more of a reflection on childhood than a spiritual journey. Trying to understand these huge forces and concepts, trying to find your own meeting in all these different traditions. And it 
has a really interesting transition through the different phrases that I found kind of follow how you process and put weird memories together in your mind yeah. of, you know, your life trying to make sense of them. So I kind of was felt myself flowing along through them. Yeah, I want to say, I want to say before you get into this, uh, the... Uh the adult, the well-known adult music dread of the uh, jazz suite, um, isn't really in effect here. You know, this is uh, yeah. a pretty interesting piece. My whole problem with jazz suites is generally that it's just somebody's like pretentious kind of like, uh, you know, kind of like can be graduation yeah. project or something. But that, right. that's not the case here. This actually comes across really yeah. interestingly. This is some pretty interesting. Yeah. So. We're going to get the intro to the suite, and it's a really short, less than a minute. It's very hymn-like, uh, with a trumpet on top of a horn melody over the saxes, and uh, the guitar is also important in the way that the harmonies are structured, so listen to that. And that leads into part one, The Road to Recollection. And Zwig kicks it in with a drum intro to the melody that has Rosenblum on rhythmic lines over stop time bass and drums, switching to a driving swing over walking bass. On the repeat, the horns come in and carry on to a new section with a nice horn arrangement. The whole band locks in on the accented figures. We hear the first section again with horns added to launch into a piano solo from Rosenblum. And he swings nicely here with smooth right hand, melodic lines, and punchy chords. It swells with horn lines and more percussive piano playing to a climax. Then the beat falls away to a nice transition section of high register piano and bass lines of soft pairs of notes over some soft guitar and cymbals, working into a bass solo from Jaffe. And he has a nice snap in his melodic lines as the beat builds up into the horn arrangement from before into an ending of spacey synthed out guitar. The sustain fades directly into the next movement, which is part two, the gathering. And this starts with some accordion, repeated note, melody phrases in a slow four beat. Bass and drums join in, giving it a little bounce. The horns come in with a harmonized arrangement with lines that swell in and out. Then we get very soft and gentle tenor sax solo. I guess that's Del Castillo here. Uh, he gets a little trilly over some soft ring guitar. The pulse stays the same here, but it gets a 6-8 feel, uh, giving it a speeded flow along. The sax builds in intensity, and the accordion swells the horn lines that come in again, too, leading to an animated trumpet solo from Tucker. I like the triplets and false fingering ideas he adds among his more boppy lines. And the horns and accordion lift and swell, and then have some falling and rising chaotic lines. Uh, the saxes and accordion work a line into new short phrases with trumpet on top for drums to solo and fill the gaps as it slows and softens to the end. Then the drums disappear and leave only the horns and the accordion. And then again, no gap right into part three, living streams. And that gets into a rubato solo piano intro for this part. It gets a gospel feel uh, to it coming into tempo with a bass line pickup and drums and bass joining. Here Rosa takes the melody line on guitar simply. The horns then return with some soft hymn-like lines uh, reminding us of the intro. And Rosa's guitar returns with some more pearly sounding notes and into an improvised solo, getting it to speedier lines. Then the horns add backing lines and build up to a hold with a high trumpet note. There's a pause and then we end it with the horn and guitar line from the intro with a big strong final cadence. So you've got you know that kind of sandwich of that theme there and uh, yeah nice construction takes you through some different kinds of uh, thought categories and feelings in the mind I, I enjoyed it i like a good sandwich whether it's uh, yeah. musical or edible yeah and where are you going to get a better sandwich than in new york huh? <laughs> 
Oh, I miss those New York sandwiches. I, I think everybody does because I don't think they make them anymore. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. All right. Check seven, the bell from Europe. And the note said, a theme inspired by a Weldon Keys poem and Croatian church bells and something of a meditation on the search for meaning after the slaughter of two world wars. Uh, this is a pretty piece, though, I have to say. I liked yeah, it. It is. Uh, it starts with a deep and mournful rubato bowed bass from Jaffe. Rosenblum enters on piano with soft bell-like left-hand chords and a minor melody theme with some bass tones and triangle added in there. Tucker takes the melody next on trumpet, joined, I think, by alto sax in harmony. Bass and drums come in to give it push as it builds. Rosa gets the melody next on guitar before the horns rejoin with the next section. And Rosenblum gets some melody sections on piano before the horns take it to a new higher level and then return with bass clarinet and trumpet working over guitar into a melodic bowed bass solo that digs really deep getting nice edge on the bowing the horns add short backing phrases into a crescendo to working the melody over the full ensemble it really swells and then comes back down softer leaving rosenblum with the beginning piano melody and bell-like chords into a final deep bowed bass ending Track eight is called The Village Steps. There's a busy drum intro with some extra percussion sounds. It gets an improvised alto sax and some rhythmic horn backing into a more chugging 6-8 beat with bass and guitar chords. Rosenblum takes over with some bouncy accordion melody lines and choppy squeezed chords. The sax is back for a melody line. There's some more horn buildup with accordion into an even more rhythmic accordion solo with playful flowing lines. There's some more rising sax lines into another swinging sax solo. Then there's a drum, percussion, and bass groove section with some horn lines working back into the accordion melody and nice answering lines by Rosa's guitar. The horns lifted up again into some playful accordion and squawky sax into rhythmic horn and accordion like at the beginning to end it. Track 9 is called Lillian. This starts with some high ringing and repeating piano note phrases. Bass and drums join in with uh, Dutz's bass clarinet melody that starts up in the high register. There's some ping-pong reverby <laughs> guitar added for effect. Next, Tucker joins the bass clarinet on Harmon muted trumpet for harmonized lines. The tempo shifts in and out of double-time feel for some solo piano lines from Rosenblum before settling back for some more clarinet and ringing descending bass lines into an extended bass solo from Jaffe getting a mournful, pleading sense in his phrases. The double-time feel pops back in and out. Dutz is next for a bass clarinet solo, getting some burr on the edge of his tone and some sassy swooping and low notes into swinging phrases. He gets heavy with some hammering piano chords from Rosenblum, but suddenly lightens as it connects back to melody riffs and the chiming piano notes to a soft ending. Track 10, Song of the Sabia. It's a Brazilian tune by Hobeam. Uh, I think Sinatra even did a version of this. Uh, it goes back to 1968. We get the pretty melody, which may be familiar to you, on a tenderly bowed bass from Jaffe over Rosenboom's piano. But suddenly, it's interrupted <laughs> by like a uh, the birds from a Hitchcock movie in the form of uh, the horns uh, fluttering in. Uh, then we get a new start with a throbbing bass ostinato and Rosenblum on accordion and some light percussion, starting a Brazilian uh, foro groove, I believe. The horns add melody lines on top with flute and clarinet floating in the mix, exchanging sections with Rosenblum, who gets nice chugging rhythmic squeezes under his melodies and works into an improvised solo. 
The horns transition again to a bouncy and bluesy guitar solo from Rosa with lots of cool interval ideas in his licks, comes to a hold, and finishes up with a return of the bird-like horn sounds from earlier. And the last track is called Implicit Attitude, and this one is a contrafact of Boplicity, a Miles Davis Gil Evans tune from 1957, Birth of the Cool. So if you're not familiar with the term contrafact, we're going to hear another one later in an album, but it's taking the harmonic structure of a known tune and adding a new melody to it. So it'll sound familiar in some ways, but the melody's different. So Rosenblum has given it a new, boppy, and broken-up melody. This starts with an intro of some horn hits. The muted trumpet and clarinet sound really good together, and they give it a more up-tempo treatment that swings nicely uh, compared to you know, the original Boplicity. I like how the bass plays part of the melody lines with the horns in the arrangement. Del Castillo rips out of the break with a husky tenor solo with a fun little hesitation right at the start and some swooping lines. Rosenblum follows the piano solo, keeping it swinging with nice melodic ideas. And Tucker follows with a trumpet solo. Sounds like a cup mute here. Happy licks, you know, including a lot of fun triplet figures. And Dutz gets some bass clarinet fun, both high and low in solo exchanges with Zwig on drums. And they take it through the melody once more to wrap it up. And that's it. It's quite a mix of cultural ingredients and influences here, but it all comes together in a fun way with lots of positive energy from this group. The arrangements are inventive and have a lot of fast changing sections to help keep you on your toes. The instrumentation is varied with bass clarinet and flute adding a lot of tonal variety in the horn arrangements. And Rosenblum sounds inspired both on his piano solos and accordion work. I liked his playing a lot. I also like Tucker's unique trumpet tone and his solos a lot too. I'm looking forward to what kind of mix of music he can put together for this interesting group of musicians. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I like the way this album uh, kept drawing my ear in and challenged my perception of what was happening musically. <laughs> mm. Rosenblum's playing has a classical quality on the piano, so that, I noticed that right away. Uh, the album has a lot of styles, jazz, classical, folk dance, Bulgarian, all of which interchange in the first two tracks. But the rest of the album sort of gets away from that and more or less sticks to the style that the each track starts with. The sound quality on this album is amazingly clear on all instruments, and I liked that. Uh, it's produced somewhat like an album of popular music with a bit of gloss to it. So I think different instruments are on different tracks on the recording, uh, which is not always the case in jazz. Often they're just kind of live recordings. Um, soloing throughout is creative, and the album gets a sort of downcast and ponderous in its second half though everything is very appealing to the ear. It ends cheerily enough, though, and I want to say that the first two tracks are the most complex stylistically and really aren't an indication of what's going to follow, which is more stylistically straightforward. So you hear those first two tracks mm. with all those different styles coming out. Yeah. But then it gets a little more, um, you know, this track is about this, you know. Yeah, the last track is the most straightforward yeah. jazz tune. Yeah. So anyway, I recommend that. Like, yeah, it was interesting, yeah. yeah. Really uh, interesting and fun way to mix in the accordion with this piano playing. So, right. Yeah, let's hear more. Yeah, accordion. All right. And one more accordion one for tonight. And this is by a real accordion master, Klaus Peyer, Austrian accordionist, born in 1966. This is his new recording. Uh, it's a duo, accordion and bandonian with bass, inspired rendezvous on Skip Records. This came out February 17th, and he's here with Florian Dorman, a German double bassist born in 1972 in Tübingen. And 
They started this duo, it says on Dorman's website in 2019. Now we heard Pyre before, actually, in episode 29, that was called Europa Europa, with his group Fractal Beauty. And they're kind of a chamber jazz group that also has uh, woodwinds and cello along with accordion. And I only came to know them because they performed here in Japan. At, oh, uh, really? Friend, yeah, you got Rob, to see them. Rob introduced me to them because they played at uh, Doshisha University. Oh, how about he said, that? You ought to check this group out. And that's when I found that fractal beauty recording. And you know, it was really interesting, um, fine musicianship and interesting mix of other influences with jazz. And so I saw that he had a new recording coming out. And I said, well, this is perfect for our accordion episode. Yeah. Now, I do have to admit, it says he plays accordion and bandonian. And I'm not an <laughs> expert yeah. of either one of these instruments. Um, they are structurally very different. I recommend you look at photos of both of them. You can see now, the Bandonia uh, has the all buttons, and the accordion has yeah. like a keyboard and then buttons for the right. chords and the bass. The Bandonia has buttons, and it's more like a, a tube kind of uh, yeah. looking instrument. And I, th I believe it has a softer sound in general. It doesn't because you know, it's smaller, it doesn't quite have that kind of force or edge. But it, there's no notation as to which tunes have which instrument, and I'm not always sure <laughs> when I'm listening to it. So I'll just focus more on what I hear rather than uh, the techniques. So just two musicians, but they're going to go through a lot of uh, different styles, and there's a lot of space in this music, which makes it kind of interesting. Yeah. And their communication and interplay is really the charm of this recording. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a nicely recorded album, too. And Yeah, um, the sound is great. Yeah. And we've got an interesting mix of original compositions and uh, some jazz <laughs> choices that are kind of interesting. Yeah. But we're going to start out with a Pyre original called Breeze. And he starts out solo on the upward floating and breezy melody. Dorman joins him on the repeat of the first section with a very cool rhythmic interval bass line, giving it a kind of 6-8 feel. The next section turns darker with a minor feel, with Pyre adding harmony below his lines, and then Dorman working an interlude of repeated bass lines. Pyre works into a short improvised solo, and then Dorman gets some space to improvise as well. They return to the original brighter melody and end it with some soft chords. I want to say something about this track, um, and this is actually something that happens throughout the album. The accordion's melody is panned into the left channel, and the uh, chords from the accordion are on the right channel. I thought that was really odd, and I'm kind of wondering how that's happening. Is it two accordions, or is it an accordion and a bandonian? Is he double-tracking himself, or is he just rocking back and forth between the two microphones and we're just hearing... Because it seems to me like the accordion sound comes through the same source. Mm. I'm really, I was really curious about this. After hearing that previous classical recording where that effect right. uh, is quite startling in headphones, I'm thinking it's just, uh, you know, the instrument, maybe when it's uh, at its widest <laughs> birth. Huh. I'm going to have to go back and listen gonna, for that to that yeah, classical that work. Yeah, I don't know. But that panning is kind of interesting. Yeah. Now we're going to get a really cool take on a jazz classic. Caravan, the Juan Teasel Duke Ellington tune. And uh, one great thing about Dorman is he's really good at coming up with awesome ostinato figures uh, on this album. And uh, yeah. he makes a really cool groove with a great ostinato figure for this one uh, that ends in these real tension-building intervals on the bass. Pyre gets some soft chugging rhythmic chords going before he gets into this famous melody, adding tasty trills to the ends of phrases. Now, in the contrasting major section of the melody, Dorman mixes up the bass with snappy figures and syncs up 
the end with Pyre. There's a cool break into Pyre's solo, and you can hear him vocalizing softly along with his playing. <laughs> uh, he improvises snaky and tumbling lines, having a lot of fun. Dorman's solo is melodic and bluesy on bass and spots, but keeps the rhythmic snap at all times. And when they work back to a segue to the shorter reprise of the melody, we get some extra hand slaps for percussion. Uh, this one is a lot of fun. Mm. Next, we're going to get a Dorman original, Morgenthau. Pyre starts it out, rubato with floating melody phrases and chord squeezes. Dorman joins in with answering lines to his. It moves along like relaxed breathing almost, until about a minute and 40 seconds, when it gets a lightly swaying, waltzing groove under Pyre's flowing melody lines. Dorman gives it a more stronger push with uh, walking, and then he gets into a solo himself with really engaging melodic ideas. I should say at this point, the recording quality is really fabulous yeah. on this on this uh, recording. Uh, Pyre's accordion sounds clear and full with a nice natural reverb and Dorman's bass is huge and warm throughout this recording. They flow through a little of the melody and then return to the rubato answering exchanges with some dense shimmering chords. Maybe that's, uh, what did you call the technique? Oh, the um, oh, bellows technique. Bellows yeah. technique, mm -hmm. maybe. Maybe we're learning. Yeah, well, that's accordion. a new term for me, the bellows right. technique me on too. the accordion. Yeah. yeah, so we get some shimmering chords from Pyre to finish it up. Now we're going to go to um, Klaus Pyre original and the title track inspired rendezvous it starts out with some subdivided and syncopated trickery with unison stop and start modally melody phrases in both instruments alternating with snappy bass segments and a phrase of unison interval figures <laughs> that doesn't make a lot of sense you just gotta listen to yeah it. you gotta hear this i don't know after a few go-arounds pyre gets some softer rhythmic squeezing for dorman to get a rhythmic jamming solo going for a bit but they join up on the ostinato riff and Pyre takes it up higher. After a pause, Pyre returns to the softer chords and Dorman gets some rapid rising and falling bowing going, building up the tension. Pyre bellows out a low note as the tempo dissipates into some new rubato accordion ideas as the scratchy bowing fades away. Then Dorman launches into a new cool minor modal thing and Pyre obliges with some soft soloing and chords on top, building it more and more. Uh, working back to the disjointed original melody section and the earlier ostinato figure for a press to the end. There's lots of rhythmic and modal fun uh, in this tune. Track 5's uh, Dorman composition transition. And Dorman starts it with a repeated rhythmic note that turns into a descending bass line as Pyre adds a longing melody line. The ends of phrases have cool modal bass riff and Pyre adds some harmonic tension with shaky chords. They go around again with more rhythmic chord backing from Pyre. There's a contrasting flowing bridge section. Then they go softer with Pyre taking the starting melody way up high and it works into an improvised solo. The harmonic and modal twists are cool and he has some really snaking and speedy lines ending up in some lightly pulsing chords before Dorman gets a bass solo with a good throb in his lines. Then we bring it back into the melody again, lower on the accordion with Pyre adding a little more harmonic tension, and then take it back up soft and high on the keys with a few final soft minor modal noodles. Uh, it's so quiet and clear you can hear the keys click yeah. uh, when he presses. I rather enjoyed that, actually. And then we're going to get uh, another Dorman tune, and this is the answer to Mike's favorite question. What you doing, Mike? Staying home, baby. That <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about this week. I sent uh, you like a yeah. I sent you a, like a cartoon about that. Why should we go out? We're all going to wind up back home anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
Maybe this one is Bandonian here, the tone. I'm not sure. Maybe we'll find out. Can't tell. Dorman gets the uh, floor for some solo bass here, working some really cool ringing intervals and then getting a snappy bass groove going. There's some hand-slapping percussive sounds added before Pyre adds some rhythmic squeezing and then gets into a snaking melody line over the bass. The structure is interesting. I mean, it seems to be built like a 24-measure melody, but when you get to what would be the last measure, it modulates into (laughs) like this... uh, little uh, four-measure interlude, and then it goes back around uh, again. So you get that feeling of surprise right when you think you're going to get the resolution of the phrase. Uh, but the way the progression works, it, you could feel it almost like as a in halftime as a type of altered 12-bar blues, the way the harmonic progression goes. So I don't know if that's just me, the way I was hearing it. Anyway, Pyre takes a solo around the pattern twice, keeping the chords bouncing along, and then he keeps it going through a couple more uh, melody runs. Kind of interesting tune. Track seven is Golden Bay. This is another Dorman original. It's a happy-sounding melody and swelling chords that get started by Pyre, and it seems to be an A-A-B construction. Uh, Dorman comes in with bass on the repeat of the A section and continues on with a heartbeat-like pulse. The B section is more melancholy sounding, and there's an extra measure of pause before they repeat the form. Uh, Dorman's solos first and empire, and things get more drive and intensity from Dorman's subdivided repeated bass notes. It calms at the end of the solo, and they pick up the melody from the B section into a final run through the sections. On this track, I'm wondering if there are there two accordions on this track? Because I'm hearing one on the left channel and one on the right channel. They seem to be oh, really? different. I, I can't tell. It might be a double tracked uh you know he might be playing twice i'm not really sure maybe he'll write to us and let us know yeah it'd be nice to be happy to know track eight is a pyre original tangue and it starts with an infectious minor rhythmic dance between the two it's in four beat but there's a measure of two four in there uh, (laughs) that surprises you breaks it up they go around and round and then it detours with some descending lines to rubato chords and a new melody from pyre After a pause, we get a new slow longing minor melody over ringing bass interval lines. It swells, then it gets soft to a pause before they return to the opening dance theme for a final run. A surprise uh, cover tune, Charles Mingus's Fables of Faubus. This is really cute. This is really fun. And so Pyre starts this one out solo uh, with chords and bluesy lines that were, if you know the original Mingus recording, those were the sax and trombone lines, these kind of bluesy little figures. Now now you're going to hear them on accordion uh, from the original introduction. And Dorman joins in. He gives it a steady alternating bass pulse and figures into walking to drive it along through the melody. They go around again with Pyre swelling it up and then there's these furious measures of uh, double time <laughs> that you hear in the bass here. Those are from the original as well. Pyre has some really fleet solo lines up in the high register. And then Dorman has a solo with speedy rhythmic lines as well. And we get the speedy middle section again. And then they finish it up with a final run through the main melody, uh, starting out soft and then building it up. That is an interesting uh, treatment of a Mingus tune. Track 10, a Pyre original to liven it up. And it starts with a high and soft droning bass bowed note. Uh, You can barely make it out when you first hear it. Pyro comes on top of 
that with a soft but lively dance melody and staccato chords, you get some high lines that sound flute-like almost, I thought. Things get more chugging as the bass bow grows louder and then has rapid bowing of descending pitches. There's a really cool diversion of a wild minor modal kind of figure uh, before Dorman gets into a bowed bass solo. Empire has rapidly pulsing chords that Dorman syncs up with at the end of his solo and then starts on his own solo. Dorman obliges with a really funky plucked bass groove then. Uh, he works some chugging chords back into the melody, original melody idea, and Dorman gets some really cool triplet and other rhythmic bass ideas going. And we hear that cool minor section once more, again into a final soft section of the melody. Then we've got track 11, Fragment. This is a Dorman original composition. Melody phrases of three measures of 4-4, four, four, and then a three-beat pause, giving it a really interesting start and stop feel to the beginning. Uh, the next section gets slower, legato, and mysterious over descending bass lines. They repeat those patterns, and then Pyre picks up from the legato section for some more swelling chords. They go through the patterns again, and this time Pyre moves to some really high-register soloing over a hypnotic bass line from Dorman who gets to improvise next with some interesting rhythmic ideas. They go through the soft swelling section into faster phrases to finish it up. We're going to end up with Secret Moments, the Sapire original. And he starts it solo and rubato with a melody that has rising lines into soft chord pulses. Dorman comes in after about a minute and 20 seconds with an improvised bass line as Pyre gets soft and fades out returning with sparse chord squeezes. It's rather secretive, in fact, and intimate. Pyre takes the melody again, this time with added bass push from Dorman's pulses, and they take it out with a soft minor outro of riff exchanges. And that's it. It's an interesting mix of different influences in musical styles, sometimes more jazzy, sometimes more folky, but always spontaneous and conversational. With just the two musicians, there's a lot of space and room to take chances and respond to each other, and that intricate communication comes through very well in the recording. Pyre makes inventive melodies and rhythmic chord ideas, and Dorman has a great bass sound, good melodic ideas, as well as being able to come up with really cool grooves and interesting ostinatos that have a lot of intricacy to them. Very fine level of musicianship here. Yeah, I thought um, Pyre's playing was uh, more in line with what you think of when you think of uh, the accordion. So he, it's, it's kind of got this nostalgic sort of quality to it. But he takes it to interesting and gentle places. And his mm. pl playing isn't – it's it's not cliched playing at all. I didn't mean to, like, no, no. Know, uh, indicate that. Um, what I enjoyed most about this recording, though, was the organic way in which, like, for example, solos started or rhythms changed. It didn't just change. You know, there, would, there would be, like, some sort of um, gradual sort of um, – you know, it's it felt very natural, like this, this – yeah. um, rhythm was moving into this next rhythm almost mm -hmm. naturally it sort of um bloomed out of the material these new rhythms and so they were happening mm. before you noticed the change and i was kind of like that I'm like oh when did that start yeah. yeah yeah there are some sudden changes too of course but um the record has some variety but that subtlety is what it was that drew me into this like you said the entire album is very spacious and the recording catches the tones and room sound exceptionally well this is like a really a recording that breathes really well as also. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
yeah so yeah Clospire, check that out also check out a uh, fractal beauty they get some uh, interesting use of the cello in there too and i remember liking that one a lot as well yeah now the next one you're going to talk about is something that really struck me i really like this, oh, one, like a lot. this one yeah, yeah that's good because i didn't have another accordion recording but i thought okay if we think of the family of instruments technically the accordion is called a free reed instrument because of the way the reed that vibrates is yeah. you know constructed in there and there's another free reed instrument that we don't hear enough of in jazz and that's the harmonica specifically here we're going to hear the chromatic harmonica for any non-musician or musically inclined listeners that we might have the normal harmonica we hear in rock pop music blues is the diatonic harmonica and what that means is basically if you thought of the piano keyboard and only the white keys so not playing any of the half steps of the black keys that's what you get with a diatonic harmonica it can play one scale of music and it can only play really in one key you can use it in a style called cross harp which they use for blues playing or rock where you kind of bend the notes to get a more bluesy effect. But if you see a harmonica player, they'll often have a vest and they have to have a harmonica for each key and <laughs> change for each song. However, the chromatic harmonica is capable of playing all the pitches and it has a little lever uh, that adds a more complicated mechanical feature to it to make it a more versatile and harder to play instrument. Yeah, we should mention that Stevie Wonder played the chromatic harmonica. So when we think of harmonica players in jazz, one name stands out, and not a lot of names stand out, actually, because they haven't been a lot of players, but that's uh, Toots Thielmans, right, yeah. uh, the great Belgian harmonica player. And actually, the musician we're talking about here is Yvonne Prenet, a French harmonica player, and his new recording called Listen. This is on the sunny side label and actually came to know him from a dedication to Toots Thielmans that was called Merci Toots, which he recorded as a duo with Pasquale Grasso, ah. the uh, phenomenal guitarist yeah. that we hear a lot of. So that came out, I think, 2015. Yeah, who, who's also on the Grammy award-winning uh, Samara Joy album. Right, yeah. yeah. So I remembered his name and I always like to hear harmonica. And when I saw this come out, I said, well, we got to get to this at some point. This came out January 20th. Well, a couple more things uh, to say here. For some reason, even though it's on Sunnyside, it's not on Deezer. And so therefore it's not in the playlist. So I put a link to Spotify. I don't know if there's a beef between Sunnyside and Deezer or something, because I don't know what's going <laughs> they on. They just uh, probably didn't pick them up or yeah, something. Yeah, could be. Anyway. We haven't done a lot of harmonica on the Adult Music Podcast. We certainly haven't done any classical harmonica, because <laughs> I don't one, really know of any. <laughs> one important episode, and you got to go back. It's one that has a lot of great music. That's episode 71, yeah. A Breeze from Brazil. Uh. And so on that episode, there's three recordings. Two Brazilian harmonica players, Mauricio Einhorn, he's getting up there, but he's the real master, and Gabriel Grossi, uh, they're both Brazilian, both true virtuosos. Also, Matthias Hesse from Denmark, uh, who was on uh, one of our favorite albums from last year, Morton Arkenfeldt's 
right. recording there. So check that out. If, if you like harmonica, you want to hear more. All three of the jazz recordings on that episode have a really great harmonica. Anyway, let's get to Mr. Prini's album. So he started playing the harmonica professionally at the age of 17 around the Paris club scene. And he got a master's degree in music from Sorbonne University in Paris in 2011. While he was still enrolled there, he moved to New York City and he got some full tuition scholarships for City College of New York, Columbia University, and the New School of Jazz and Contemporary Music. And since he's uh, come, he's been making a big splash and become a rising star of the harmonica world. He's recorded with, as previously mentioned, Pasquale Grasso, uh, guitarist Peter Bernstein, Jeremy Pelt, who's the producer of this recording, the great mm. trumpet player and who's guests on one of the tracks here. And he's an ambassador of... Honer harmonicas. Yeah, there you <laughs> we go. We mentioned the uh, clavinet We've made uh, manufacturer. the big circle yeah. back to Honer. That's right. So there we are. So we've got Preni on chromatic harmonica, Dana Stevens on tenor sax, Jeremy Pelt, the producer, and plays on one track here as well, uh, Kevin Hayes on piano, Clovis Nicholas on bass, and Bill Stewart on drums. So whenever you got Hayes and Stewart together, you're going to have a really great rhythmic basis. As a matter of fact, uh, we did their duo recording, go back to episode 79, called Piano Grandeur, American Ballad is their recording. Great drummer and pianist combination. So we got a really interesting mix of tunes here. So we're going to start out with a tune called Dig, and it's credited to Miles Davis. It came out on... Uh, his album, The New Sounds, 1951. But actually, it's suspected that Jackie McLean is probably the actual composer because the next time it was recorded a year later, it was credited to him. Now, we spoke earlier tonight of a contrafact, a song built on the harmonic structure of another tune. That's what this is. And if it sounds familiar to you, it's Sweet Georgia Brown. Oh, wow. Which you may know from the Harlem Globe. I, I didn't it's make that connection. Yeah. Old, right? So anyway... You're going to get a taste of Prentice's speedy chops right away on this tune. They give it an interesting Latin groove intro with Stewart's drums and ringing bass intervals from Nicholas. Prentice and Stevens work together on some harmonized legato lines until some syncopated pairs of notes bring in the furious swing for the melody. Uh, Saxon harmonica in unison, which is an interesting sound, over the boppy lines with a little break for harmonica on the way. And then Prentice is out of that final break from the melody with the solo. He's really creative with melodic ideas, flowing lines, mixing up with little interval phrases, nice spacing in his phrases too, to give you time to digest what you just heard. Stevens follows with a tenor sax solo. He's smooth but snappy with fast lines, and he has a really husky and beefy tone to his tenor. Hayes is up next on piano with an intense solo of well-connected lines and a real forward push. And then we get some really cool unison new melody with harp, harmonica, and sax with a cool syncopated hits uh, into some drum soloing from Stewart. They take another round of the speedy melody to an outro with some more Latin mix-up and some swelling notes to a boppy final phrase. Now we're going to get uh, three originals from Prene, starting with Mystic Minor. This one's a fast 6-8 tune with an 8-bar intro of swelling, harmonized long notes in the harmonica and sax over a Latin-feeling beat marked out in Stewart's cymbals. The melody A section has 
descending harmonica and piano phrases. Then the B section, the sax joins in for long tones, working into lines with the harmonica over a cool bouncy bass figure in the second half of it. They go around both patterns twice for 32 bars in total. The feel is more of a swinging 6-8. Prenny solos first, and I like how he mixes up simpler flowing lines with faster figures, mixing in some fun trills and a bend or two in there as well. Stephen Solo is next with a relaxed intensity and some cool rhythmic riffs, and the bass figure and some backing from Prene build up at the end of his solo. Hayes gets a piano solo with some interesting melodic development and quick turning phrases, and they vamp a bit on the end of the B section with the bass figures and some fills from Stewart before taking another melody run with a repeat of that final B section to end it. Track 3, Prene original, The Dip. This one's a medium swinging tune with sax and harmonica working the 32 measure melody together and then splitting off into some harmony. It has nice easy flowing phrases with space between and some drum breaks and harmonic tension at the end of the melody phrase. Prenny solos first. Here he's more relaxed with melodic ideas but still some surprisingly speedy double time phrases and high reaching phrases in his lines. Stevens has a solo with more fluttery phrases and good easy swing feel, some digs down in the lower register. Hayes gets a solo too before they breeze through the melody again. Track four is called Boosted, <laughs> another pretty tune. This is a subdivided rock beat on this one. Nicholas lays down a cool bass groove for the eight measure intro with Stewart's drums and some piano improv from Hayes. This one has a really disjointed and loopy melody that Prenny and Stevens work together in unison. You never know when phrases will start or end, and there's some fun hits and falls. Hayes fills in the spaces uh, with cool piano ideas. Seems to be a 16 measure melody, but ending with a big hit of the ideas in the 15th bar. Then there's a like a four bar section of groove and then they go around that pattern again. And Prenny comes in out of that to get started on some exchanges with Stevens, exchanges that they keep rather conversational, trading angular lines and some more funky phrases. His gets some harmonically out there piano going uh, mixed with some bluesy rollicking ideas on his own then. And they take it once more through the melody, with Hayes adding some percussive piano to fill the gaps. We're going to get a tune. It's a ballad by bassist Lauren Cohen called Just Have Faith. Hayes makes a rubato piano start over ringing bass from Nicholas, and Prenny and Stevens bring in the melody, still rubato and flowing over Stewart's cymbal swells and lush piano ideas from Hayes. Stevens shadows Prenny nicely with answering phrases and harmonies. It's pretty, with some nice harmonic twists in the lines, and it sort of deflates on the final phrase, and then picks up a slow and steady tempo with a kind of 8-beat feel marked out by Stewart's cymbals for another flow through the breezy melody. Prenny flows from that into a solo. It's a great one here. Lots of flights into the upper register, little pitch bends, individually puffy notes, and then some final butterfly flurries in his lines. Uh, Hayes plays a solo with a gentle touch and flowing lines on the piano before the harmonica and sax return for another run of the melody, and Hayes continues to add tasty piano fills between their phrases. They extend it for some final exchanges between Prenny and Stevens to a soft ending. Another Miles Davis-associated tune, Seven Steps to Heaven, which uh, he wrote with Victor Feldman from 
the album of that name. Uh, they give this one a whole new rhythmic feel with an extended rhythm section opening. Great light and busy drumming here from Stewart. And Prenny starts the famous stabbing melody notes in the first phrase to be joined by Stevens and Jeremy Pelt's trumpet on the next set of phrases. Stewart is filling away on the drums with great ideas and Pelt takes the little break in the melody and then jumps out with a solo at the end of the melody. Man, he sounds snappy and great. A lot of Freddie Hubbard influence shining through here. And Prenny follows starting out with dreamy legato phrases and then getting fast when they return to the driving swing section. Great agility and connected melodic ideas. Hayes has an exciting and bouncy solo next with a lot of twists and turns in his lines and Stevens finishes it up with a rhythmically intense solo and a few honks and they fade it out with him still blowing away mics. That drives me crazy. Yeah, I, I always notice that, especially in jazz recordings, you know, because uh, in pop music, I feel like it's okay, but, you know, because it's like a studio produced recording. Yeah. But in, in a live <laughs> recording, I feel like you got to end the piece. I don't know. All right, we're going to end up with going back in time for a couple of old classic tunes. Seven, she's funny that way. Yeah. This is a um, tune, goes back to uh, 19. 29 came from a short film, Gems of MGM, and that was written by Neil Moret, or Moret, which is actually a pseudonym of the writer Charles N. Daniels. So <laughs> he used a, a different name for his compositions and his real name for his business side. An old tune. Hayes makes a really classy and old-time solo piano intro for this ballad, and Prenny gets to show off his lyrical phrasing on this one. Nicholas gives deep bass pulses with soft brushwork from Stewart on the drums, and Prenny's solo flows easily even when he has more speedy flutters. He has a nice little touch of high bends and little cascading lines and really nice development of his solo structure. Hayes gets a B melody section for some softly articulated pretty touches before Prenny returns with the final A part of the theme with some holds and gaps for final flurries and flutters on the harmonica. Really nice. I thought the fantastic. harmonica solo on this was really sensitive. Yeah, it's really, it's really beautiful, yeah. He can impress with speed on a lot of the earlier tracks, but with a ballad like this, yeah. he can really shape. The phrasing is great. He gets those little bends and different breathy effects. Yeah, really beautiful. Um, yeah. yeah. And another really old tune, How Am I to Know by Jack King. So it was re first recorded by Ben Selvin and his orchestra, also 1929. Wow. But it became a pretty popular tune, also recorded by Tommy Dorsey, Glenn Miller, and Count Basie. And whoa, an eight-measure stop-time intro, and Frenny gets things flying with non-stop, speedy, improvised phrases into the melody, which is much more easy-flowing than the intro. They're swinging along with light and tight brushes from Stuart and chugging walking bass from Nicholas. Frenny's right out of the break on a solo, and he never runs out of ideas, connecting phrase after phrase of tasty, melodic stuff and mixing up different rhythmic ideas in his phrases. Hayes gets a swinging and tasty solo on piano here, too. And then Nicholas gets his first bass solo and final bass solo <laughs> of the recording. Brenny returns to add some more soloing over the first half of the verse and returns to the melody with some added chords for the second half to finish things up neat and clean. So it's a fun mix of material, Miles Davis-associated tunes, three originals, and some really old-time kind of standards. Uh, you don't hear these tunes that often uh, today. Lots of swinging and other different grooves. 
Prenny shows he can hold his own at any tempo and blow great melodic ideas and well-constructed solos. On the slower numbers, he shows sensitive phrasing and tasty bends. All great musicians here. Hayes and Stewart bring precision and class to anything they play. Stevens sounds great, too, and it's fun to hear harmonica and sax blowing lines together. A steady bass and good chugging from Nicholas as well. So... Yeah, let's hear more harmonica, especially from Prene, and see what other kind of combinations and situations he can put himself into and uh, what ideas develop from that. Yeah, I think this one's going into the uh, the collection. I, I thought the program was really interesting. Like you said, there's some really yeah. old tunes at the end. And I really like the whole sound of the album, particularly the timbre of the harmonica and the different types of softer attacks Prene can get out of it. Yeah. It always drew my ear, especially during his solo in the ballad, Just Have Faith. And I mentioned already, she's funny that way, where he displays a lot of sensitivity. I think he's actually best in ballads. Like he sounds, uh, you don't really think of the harmonic as being a sensitive instrument. And yet he really shined in those, um, yeah. in those pieces. He makes full use of the space. It gives us time to enjoy his appealing tone. And he's great in the fastest swinging tracks too, of course. He's enjoyable to listen to, and he's got an amiable, like, musical personality. Hmm. Now, Jeremy Pelt is on one of the tracks on this, and what's what's with him? You know, what's with, what's with the – maybe he's drinking a special kind of supercharged water because he's, like, on fire this year. I don't know what it's – Yeah, I know. Yeah, he re, we recently heard him on an album and said it was the best we've heard him play on record so far. And on this seven track, seven steps to heaven track here, he makes a guest appearance, and he's just as exciting there. Yeah, something something happened to this guy this year. We gotta keep uh, an ear out for him. I really feel like I've listened to his playing for a long time, but I really yeah. feel like the Freddie Hubbard influence is coming out stronger yeah. uh, in him these days. In a, in a really cool way, yeah. he's like doing like all this really cool articulated stuff. His chops sound like super iron strong and uh, just bursting with enthusiasm. He, I really like it. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I'm thinking like if you're uh, looking for a jazz, you know, a night out at a jazz club, uh, pick one where Jeremy Pelt is playing this yeah. year. You got to hear him this year. We don't know how long this is going to last. He's really cranked up. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, getting back to this album, it's a very appealing, uh, mostly swinging album that's uh, absolutely enjoyable. Going into the collection, I'd say. I think this one's going to be a keeper for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. We had a really good time with uh, this interesting uh, set of <laughs> focusing on yeah. uh, reedy instruments. And we were squeezed accordionally and we liked it. So yeah. Hopefully you did too. If you haven't heard any of this music, <laughs> you got to go uh, uh, check it all out because we're not going to be doing another one of these. The accordion and the harmonica and the clavichord are real instruments, folks. Give them a listen. That's right. And uh, as we said, next week, we're going to focus on the keyboard. I've got all piano trio recordings in jazz. Uh, some really good players you probably haven't heard, but you really should. So I'm going to use this episode to uh, get some international flavor into the piano there. And Mike's got some interesting stuff as well. Yeah, and I've got a wide variety of keyboards, first of all. And styles for those keyboards. So uh, mm. it could be a very educational podcast. Make sure you give it a listen. And we might have another surprise for you. We're not going to give you any details, but let's just say uh, in the short term, keep your eye open for uh, something special coming up. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we can't talk about say. this yet because we don't know we if it's going to happen it yet. Detail. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those kind of things. But um, 
Yeah, be sure to come over and check us out on Facebook. See those pictures from Yamatoya. See our handsome mugs there and see what kind of interaction we get this week from the musicians. You can leave a comment there as well. Thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island again and uh, for our glowing logo and continual effort to improve our New York accents. Yeah, you know, our, our logo actually has a New York accent. Yes, it does. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's in there, I can tell. Anything else? Any final thoughts? Um, oh, I'm all talked out <laughs> for this week. I'm ready to, to, to right. hear some of these keyboard recordings for next week. I'm ready to, I, I wish I could just listen to music all night, but you know, here, here in Japan, we have, um, you know, the neighbors are very close by, so you can't really mm. have your, your music playing all night long because they're sleeping and they'll hear it. But uh, oh, to have like a detached house in the middle of nowhere and just be awake all night would be <laughs> great. You can wear headphones, of course, but this is not the mm, same. Not quite the same. Yeah. This has been episode 105, and we'll see you again next week with a keyboard special for episode 106. So until then, keep listening, and we'll see you again next time. Gerald Albright, Maria Schneider, Charlie Hunter, Luke Robillard, Sean Jones, Walter Beasley, Steve Swallow. Something Came From Baltimore is a jazz, blues, and R&B podcast and radio show, and it's not really about Baltimore. Subscribe to the podcast and listen to your favorite artist or future favorite artist that something came from Baltimore and be a part of that Be More music scene. Joe Lovano, Jeff Coffin, Paula Cole, Denuso Makatani, Ann Passio, Chess Smith, Thumbscrew, mostly. Hi, jazz fans. This is the founder and host of Neon Jazz, Joe Domino. It's both a weekly radio show and interviews with musicians from all over the world, like the Netherlands, New York City, and back to Kansas City, the home of Neon Jazz, covering the rich history and modern world of jazz in a fresh way, featuring interviews with the likes of Arturo Sandoval, Sonny Rollins, Maria Schneider, and countless others. Find our weekly show on Mixcloud. Subscribe to the interviews via iTunes and YouTube. We are Neon Jazz. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you. 